This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hi, that got me really, uh, you know when I got excited? You know when I got excited? I'm not going to guess. I want you to tell us. I think we may have got excited. Same place we all got excited. When the original came through, something went through my spirit. It was okay. But when Stevie came and hit that note, that magic. Mm -hmm. And first of all, hi, we are, for some reason, twin, we didn't plan this. Did we plan this? Did we? I ain't getting. I got the. I got the the, the uh, Urea three pack narrative Nubia and Nubia refill. We're gonna Nubia and refill June. We are rolling with force. I love that green. Good morning. Yeah, I love it too. I love it too. So, um, couple of things. You know, I we titled this movement in memory. Um, you know, Coolio died uh, Wednesday, mm. and uh, fifty nine years old, young, older than both of us, but young. You know, um, no question. And I think about he didn't know he didn't know about Stevie Wonder's song. Did you know he did he wasn't aware of Pastime Paradise? Well, yeah, he said his mama had the record, but what was the I forget the first one. He said he had Stevie Wonder record, but it wasn't that one. Yeah. And, and that, right. That that song, Pastime Paradise, was on Songs in the Key of Life, which was I think it won definitely won a Grammy. It was I think the, the album of the year. Um, but that song itself didn't sell a lot of copies, right? No. Uh, Gangsta's Paradise, three times platinum, song of the year, Grammys, all of this. And a, and a billion views on YouTube. One of the few songs with a billion views. Can you believe it? Not a million. <laughs> a billion. I said, this got to be a misprint. But you know what? That, that is what we've been talking about. Now, all I was thinking about was mm-hmm. Baton passed. Stevie wrote. I mean, he was one of the producers of that song, that Gangsta's Paradise, right? So there was no disc. It wasn't like, you know, Robin Thicke and them taking Marvin Gaye's, you know, and just running with it and not giving any homage. You know, it was like Luther and my friend Teddy Van doing Love, Power, and Power of Love winning the Grammy. That's like you you, you bring that, you, you have to bring it forward. And so I was just like, yes, uh, Coolio passed. The song uh, gave new life to Stevie, uh, which is great. He's still here um, and allowed us to appreciate it even more. Stevie moves on. Stevie goes on. And you know what's funny? He, uh, uh, many years ago, uh, Brother Ivy, artist Leon Ivy Jr., also known as Coolio, uh, gave an interview to Rolling Stone where he said, um, well, and it was beautiful, like you say, this, this, you know, in our, in our cultural meaning making category and ways of knowing, how do we create? We, even individual moments of genius are collective. So just like Michael Jackson was hanging out in the studio in Detroit in Motown and Stevie Wonder helped Michael Jackson learn instrumentation, learn how to play around with a lot of the instruments because that is what that's what had been done for him in that same space when he was much younger, a kid. Uh, Michael Jackson, of course, who said that Songs in the Key of Life, in his uh, opinion, was Stevie's best album ever. You know, Michael Jackson said, but but when they recorded that. Oh, I forget the producer's name. Oh, the brother, the brother, the brother's name. But anyway, the cat uh, Sanders, uh, LV, um, Larry Sanders, who's singing on that. 
who actually on the album, apparently on the song, rather, Gangsta's Paradise, sang all the parts initially, laid down all the tracks. He said, I sang all those parts. So you don't, you sound like a choir, but it's one dude. They were in there, and, and the brother is, is uh, Rashid, Doug Rashid. Doug Rashid is the producer. They over his house, and they're coming up with this. He got a record collection. He put out songs to your life. They play Gangsta's Paradise. LV is like, wow, what is that? So they come up with this song. And then they're like, we need somebody to rap on this. So apparently like the far side, uh, a bunch of other different hip hop artists were hanging out over there. They making music again. This is our period. Now, this isn't, you know, every generation makes its cultural meaning making. The difference, as we know, between cultural meaning making and, 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 uh, and, and movement and memory is what endures oak across generations. So every everybody does this. Timberland and them, Missy and them, they are in Virginia, Teddy Riley and them, they're doing so Doug Rashid and them and all these brothers and sisters around. So they said, well, they went through a couple of iterations. They said, well, let's get Coolio. And remember, you know, one of Coolio's things was he would take songs from the previous generation and because remember he had Fantastic Voyage. That was a year before that. <laughs> you know, so he was already known. <laughs> so he said, well, let's get him. And the way at least Coolio tells Rolling Stone. He came up with the lyrics for Gangsta's Paradise in one sitting, which we often hear, but he started it with the 23rd song. As I walk through the shallow valley of the shadow of death, <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm going to start with the 23rd song. And as he talks through the 23rd song, he's really describing the social structure. I take a look at my life and I realize there's nothing left. Cause you know, cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. <laughs> In other words, this whole you know, and so they lay it out. It's beautiful. Here's the problem though: where are we gonna place? It? So apparently, the way the interview went, he tells the way he tells the story. Disney approaches them. They wanted the song for it was Bad Boys, one of Martin Lawrence's, but they didn't want to pay enough. So here come this movie they made, Dangerous Minds. You know, black people who have no tradition of education, who have no teachers, who are basically an ignorant subhuman race waiting on someone to teach us our letters and numbers and learning and stuff. Must have a white savior. So uh, here come the latest white uh, teacher savior coming into the hood to help black people. And it was Michelle Pfeiffer this time, who of course was hot and they made this movie, Dangerous Minds. They paid them. And so they had screen tested the movie apparently. And the movie was not getting high marks. When they put the song in, the movie all of a sudden doubled its rating because the people liked the song. What? Oh my goodness. But here's the, but here's the problem, as you say. They hadn't cleared with Stevie. So the way Coolio tells the story, his wife knew Stevie Wonder. They She approached Stevie Wonder and because the people, the company had approached Stevie Wonder. He was like, nah. Don't, you're not going to use my song for no gangsters. The wife talks him into, he said, one thing, I want no cussing. Take the N-word out. <laughs> Take the cussing out. And then, okay, oh, you're going to love this because, again, the song is called, at least Coolio's song, Gangsters Paradise. But the true G is Stevie. Stevie asked for and got 95% of the publishing role. <laughs> he didn't get half the play. He didn't get a quarter. He didn't get just a writer's credit. <laughs> 95%. Can you imagine that? Coolio said, yeah. I don't know then. Yeah, of course you can imagine. This guy been in the business since he was in single digits. He's seen Barry Gordy in there. He's seen the best to ever do it. This is governance structure. You know what I'm saying? It's 
Oh, I didn't know what, you know, we were going to talk about today because we never, we don't, we don't pre do this. We don't have any kind of conversation beforehand. So there's a few things. Yesterday I had the honor of speaking with Kwame Alexander. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that I, I didn't know I would love him as much as I ended up loving him. I didn't know, you know, I come in, I don't know nobody, Dr. Carr. I just, you know, I was like, oh, who's on? Okay. All right, that's that's kind of signifying. If you're, if you're in the governance formations, y'all know what that is. If you're from the social structure, let me translate it for you. She knows everybody, but she's trying to make sure she is in this story. I'm just helping y'all because this more and more people are watching this. It's blowing my mind how many people I see. Oh, I watch it. But yeah. you're like, Anyway, so please go on. So you didn't know. You don't know nobody. I don't know. You know. And so, like, we had. So I had my class yesterday. I decided to let them come in. Previously, we. Um, I was interviewing Patina Miller, who's in um, one of those power. She plays the Mother Rock, who I, I love this particular power because it brings me back to to the '90s and Queens and drugs and Tommy yeah. Montana and the whole. You know. I used to cover this when I was at the oh, Daily yeah. Show. So, yeah, so I was like, this is nostalgic for me, and I love the character. But two times now, she's not showing up with my class sitting there. So I was like, yeah, I'm just telling the backstory, you know, yeah. that's not, or she didn't want the camera on or whatever. I, and you know me, I'm unbothered uh, as it relates to this because you know. And I was saying to my class, we don't need these interviews, you know. Like I'm grateful to to have a platform, but I literally could talk for three hours, and this was a pre-tape, so it's not live. And it was okay, right? Oh, okay. So he was he was late, and I was telling my class, I was like, I don't really know this guy. <laughs> you know? So if he shows up, fine. If he doesn't, we, you know, I'm gonna bring my producer in. We'll have some sort of class around, you know, how what we do when these things happen. And so I was trash talking him before he came in. I know he could hear. Maybe he could hear me because they were in the in the, in the studio. So he comes he he comes in. I don't know if he heard me or not. And you know me, I'm unbothered. Uh, yeah. and, but he comes in with such reverence and energy and we are talking about publishing his daddy used oh, to you know, have a publishing and i'm thinking paul coates but even before paul coates and i'm like so i asked him this question that set him on his ass and i was like you know your dad had this publishing house and you had a publishing house and now you got these books and you publishing with uh, shit have you sold out you know and he was like oh are we are we doing this so he, he said he's like we and i was like yeah because you know what what is it that you know is it the money is it the resources i mean you know the 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 ability to distribute why haven't we become one of the big four when it's our content right now that i mean if you look at the bestsellers list dr carr if you look at it it's us <laughs> all they're buying right now is us no you know some of your friends some of the people i don't really know know have a lot of book deals they make it a lot of money and i'm like at what cost at what cost? So we're giving away our, our content. So we were having this comment and he, you know, he was processing it. And I'm like, I wonder, because one of the reasons why narrative was founded was to do exactly that, right? Yes, it evolved because narrative is about telling our stories. And I was going to, you know, come back into publishing after being with Simon Schuster for 10 years and take them out. That was my goal. Let me just be transparent because not take them out because that's that's a, a, a melanemic way of looking at the world. No, um, right. Take our rightful place. Exactly. Take what's ours. So he was thinking, and I, I don't know where it's going to land with him, but I'm looking at all of the powerhouse books right now, and I know how much money is made because I was on the other side of it publishing. So I know- They can't lie to you. you can't, but I know how much money you're making. 
so when do we make the, that move to reclaim? Because they're still orchestrating. Well, you know, if you would just make it a little more this or a little less that, or, mm -hmm. huh, you know, what about, you know, what about this? Or what about that? And I'm like, no, just be all of you. We, this week in Nubia, uh, screened a film by one of uh, the hosts on Urban View, uh, Omi Bell. She has a, you know, entrepreneurship is a boxing match. And we got to screen her and she has a mural in DC. She has a mural, two murals actually. I mean, a huge, she's got a, she had to deal with Nike to do this. Uh, and she funds black women in business. And, you know, she's working on a book and she, she asked me a question and I was like, you know, put your face on it, do what you wish your book, it's your book. How, how do you want to present yourself a hundred years from now? So we were sitting there and I'm watching this documentary and I was like, She's coming up with all of these titles that she thinks will be acceptable. I said, the title is the title. Entrepreneurship is a boxing match. Each chapter now, ding, ding, let's go. Have some boxing reference. And let, in, in real time, she was like, okay. But we're so conditioned. Will they accept it? It doesn't matter right. whether they accept it. They're already stealing from, from us and our, and our, you know. Great stealing. I mean, it's like. And then I see little Kiki Palmer. I call her little Kiki Palmer. Of course. She's, starting, she's starting her own network. And I was like, yes, yes, all of this. Yes, she's got her own network. Yes. All of it. All so of it. I feel like it's our time. It's been our time. Yeah. We give ourselves, as a, as the famous Hollywood filmmaker told Haile Garima, and this guy's now made transition, but I'm still not going to name him in this moment. He said, uh, I wish they would give me permission to make a movie like Sankofa. And Holly was like, what? I get. I gave myself permission. What are you talking about? They gave you them. They don't give you permission to do anything. And uh, that's very powerful. And, and and in fact, we are doing it. We're doing it now. I mean, again, it, it, the quiet part is leaking out loud a little. So the people who are coming into this space or who are aware of observing this space, you just listen to the language around. You can see the language shifting. And that's fine. Because pouring a clean glass of water doesn't uh, doesn't include sending it to the EPA for testing. <laughs> no, <laughs> we know what clean water is. We're the first people on the planet who know what clean water is. So we'll pour it. We're not getting in no ideological debates. Any debates and conversations we have, we're having in here. So uh, those who those who aren't yet on in the Nubia formation or for whatever reasons, you didn't see what we led with this morning, which was, of course, the 1995 Billboard Awards. And then a little bit of glimpse of when we talked about uh, the, the Kiki Palmer uh, interaction with, between governance and social structure a couple of weeks ago. You know, here's Luther Vandross uh, announcing Coolio winning the Song of the Year at the Billboard Awards. And here's Kenny G trying to blow his little uh, echo horn in the middle of the announcement and Luther Vandross unbothered doesn't break or even look over there or acknowledge that that little whiny sound is coming out of Kenny G's little whiny uh, embarrassment horn and he <laughs> passes it off to I mean, I hear, burr, burr, nobody want it I'm not even going to acknowledge you said you did that you just you know you just can't help it Kenny Jimmy Fallon I mean Kenny G I mean whoever to get in on the swag but um if you if you didn't see that, you know maybe we can put that in. Somebody will put it in the in in on the YouTube side in the chat maybe. But the the whole interaction, because like you say, Coolio and LV come out and they do the song the way that they saw it in the movies. That people made this huge smash song, 
And then, you know, they do the couple of courses and you hear LB singing, you know, been living most of my life, living in a gangster's paradise. And then he goes into that hook, right? I mean, LV, who, you know, wrote that hook, and he, and he asked the question. He says, you know, tell me why are we so blind to see that the, what is it, that the ones we heard are you and me? So he sings that twice. And as you say, Karen, then you hear that unmistakable voice yes. from the back. And you realize it's not LV. And you hear the litany. See, Songs Kid Life, 1976. The historians, dead ass wrong, as usual, <laughs> say, well, this is near the end of the Black Power era. The Black Power era began when you put your hands on us in Africa, and it continues to today. But I know what you mean. By 1975, 1976, you see some kind of dissipation of some of the formations that we associate and affiliate with Black Power, but they hand it off to the next generation. Now, if you're in the government's governance formation, you know the impact of the 1950s and 60s. It continues to this day, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, Songs in the Key of Life emerges at a moment when it is no longer the 1960s. It isn't even the early 70s where Stevie Wonder is recording, where Marvin Gaye is recording, where Curtis Mayfield and Isaac Hayes, and we've talked about all those things uh, before. But when you hear gangsters, uh, Pastime Paradise, which of course Stevie Wonder's uh, uh, single song, it in many ways defines the social structure. And as Stevie Wonder has said himself about that song, it's part kind of a retrospective on the previous decade and the previous generation's struggle, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. And it is also a kind of commentary and urging to build on the momentum of that struggle for the next iteration. In other words, don't go backward in terms of trying to relive a decade or two decades and don't go forward into a fantasy future. Build the paradise you want to live in. That's what he has said in terms of well, how does this song mean? You know, pastime paradise. He said, no, you can't go back. It's not nostalgia. That Leave that to the United States of America. See, white people love, this white country loves nostalgia. As Gil Scott Heron said around the same time in a song he recorded called B-Movie. He said, this country wants to go backward, even if it's only as far as last week. And when they couldn't get John Wayne, because he was dead, they went and got the next thing, Ronald DeRay gun. So he, that's why he recorded B-Movie in 1982. You know, and, and, and as uh, uh, as he said in the hook to that song, he said, um, you don't have to be in any hurry. You don't ever really, ever really have to worry. You don't need to check on how you feel. Just keep repeating that none of this is real. And if you get the feeling that something's wrong, well, just remember that it won't be too long before the director cuts the scene. Yeah, this ain't really your life. This ain't really your life. Ain't really your life. Ain't really nothing but a movie. This ain't really your life. Gil goes in this song through an entire critique of the Reagan years. A entire critique of what happens in the post-1960s years when the oil prices skyrocket because, as he said, the Arabs have bought the third world and put a firm down payment on the first world. And he says, he goes on to say that the shifting of power in the world 
has decentered the United States. At least it's in the process of decentering. This is in the late 1970s, early 1980s. He goes through the decade of the 70s. And in another song, he is uh, he he opens the commentary Gil Scott Heron by saying, when people ask me about the 60s, uh, I say, well, the 60s are over. And uh, I want to talk about what's going on now, even as you build on the momentum of the 60s, because we know Gil Scott Heron comes to our attention when he writes as a 21-year-old, the revolution will not be televised. But anyway, I went through all that to say that Gil understands and, and commented and made an analysis out of his cultural meaning making and his way of knowing coming out of our governance formations and cultural meaning making and ways of knowing that the social structure we find ourselves in is 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 anchored in looking backward to an imaginary past remember it is ronald wilson reagan who coins the term make america great again not donald john trump and trump engaged in the social structures form of movement and memory picks that up and finds that resonant chord in white nationalism and white nativism that having been said Gill recognizes that Stevie in 1976, Songs of the Key of Life, Pastime Paradise, acknowledges that social structure, but doesn't allow that social structure to overwhelm the momentum of the cultural grounding that he received in the 50s, carried through the 60s, like Marvin Gaye made that pivot in the late 60s, early 70s, into the analysis of the social structure and envisioning a world to come. And Pastime Paradise was not one of the most popular songs on Songs of the Key of Life, because it isn't the joy, it isn't the love. And so, you know, white people who listen to Stevie Wonder too, and other people like, ah, black people know exactly what he was talking about. So when Coolio and LV are there at the Billboard Awards and they're singing Gangster's Paradise, and people, oh yeah, by then, gangster rap and everything is there. And Coolio got the grimy thing going on. West Coast, West Coast, West Side. Want to put some hood stuff in there. They love it. It's a soundtrack for another one of them white savior movies. And so, which was a tanking. Then the move, then the then the song comes in. People like to cook. It's a minor key. And so LV is singing, you know, why are we so blind to see? Who is the we? Well, the we gets to be a multicultural we in that moment, knowing that there is no we that the ones we heard are you and me and then without being seen if you listening you know that voice when you hear that voice and it's like after lb sings that hook you hear dissipation of race relations oh and then the camera goes to the back of the stage past the choir and you see one of them young boys in the choir robe. And who is he leading in? Consolation, segregation, dispensation, isolation. Stevie Wonder comes in and everybody starts cheering because he is narrating the social structure that they were resisting in the 60s and 70s. Isolation, exploitation, mutilation, mutation, miscreation confirmation to the evils of the world lb comes back in and watch what he does this is governance they're singing a duet lb comes in and he says been spending most of our lives living in a pastime paradise lb sings the stevie wonder word and then stevie comes back been spending most of our lives living in a gangster's paradise wait what just happened wait what just happened Y'all enjoying the music. Watch that. The young boy put Pastime Paradise. Guess who introduced it? Not Kenny G with that little punk horn. 
as James Brown said in uh what was it blues and pants when they had the long version and he and he, and he says uh he says come in I need the horn I need a horn and then one of the little horns comes in he said Fred bring me a, play a black horn and then you hear the tenor sax come in dun, 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 dun. he's like yeah I don't want that little horn Kenny G tried to put his little horn in there but Luther had already set it up this song is based on the 1976 Stevie Wonder song Pastime Paradise it wasn't just a duet it was governance because the generations locked in with each other and then after LV did that a couple of times and Stevie did that a, co a couple of times what's the duet they sing together they sing together. There are no gangsters in paradise. There are no races in paradise. There are no gangsters. Ain't no gangsters in paradise. And y'all gonna get rid of this white nationalism too. Ain't gonna be no races in paradise either. What a brilliant display. So when Coolio made transition, I played for my introduction to African studies class the video, that long video from 1995, that, 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 that version. And of course, most of them had never seen it. Most of them were fascinated by the fact that there were a billion views. <laughs> and, but after hearing that, and then us sitting there, I, you know, we did the same thing we did this morning. Just reactions. This is a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year olds, 21 year olds. For the most part, you know, uh, 240 students in that class. And as you say, that that electric shock goes through. But when Stevie Wonder came, it became something completely different. And I asked them, did y'all pick up on what was happening there? And of course, many of them did. Yeah. LV sang Pastime Paradise. Stevie Wonder said Gangster's Paradise, the mutual respect. And then together, they made the real point. You know, gangsters in paradise, you know, races in paradise. Michelle, Pfeiffer, sis, go back to Scarface with the Italian cat playing the Cuban. And, and you go back over there and get abused by your husband and then by your lover who becomes the cat that ends up, you know, putting you in harm's way. We got this over here in our governance structure. You don't even know. You don't even know who... Um, Artist Ivy Jr. is. You don't know who Larry Sanders is. You know Coolio and LV because that's what you do to get the money. But to understand what that was, you have to go behind a curtain that you're not allowed. We let you see what you want you to see, Disney. You license the song, Steve One is like, no problem, 95%. In other words, y'all don't make and no cursing. And I ain't even mad at y'all, young boys. I'll come and do a duet, and I'm gonna do a duet, and we're gonna make the point that's underneath this point. Because who we are to each other is very different. It's very different than who we are to these other people. And and, and he was like, well, doggone. Now, now, all that I, I say in the context of this week, because, you know, our weeks, as you say, Prof, are, are packed, like all humans. And people are fighting, uh, I say people, the managers who profit in this world are fighting desperately to pull us back onto these labor, into these labor camps. And we're not going. <laughs> being human beings so when we talk about the renewed normal in nubia we are renewing a normal as people are talking about a new normal they don't want a new normal they want a renewed normal from yesterday even if it's only as far back as 2020 february but we're not talking about that we're not going for nostalgia we're not going back to a world that doesn't exist anymore and let me pause here before i go on 
to mention my friend and brother Kwame Alexander. You asked him a question that I'm sure he's been asked before. And I know Kwame Alexander a long time. You know, all them guys was in school. I mean, the hand of God, he just texted me. So while you were talking, uh-huh. I dropped my number. Again, we don't know know each other. So yeah. I'm like, you know, I gave him my number. I've, I'm never going to bother anybody. So if it's if you're compelled, you know, I felt like we were vibing. I, I told him it was a conversation I didn't know I needed. Um, I would have waited for him forever. It was, it, I, I left there feeling so full. I dropped my number. He, while you were talking, he texted me. And <laughs> I promise you, I'm looking, um, he said, Greg is OG. Knew him oh, since no. he was an undergrad at TSU. Look at this. Oh, man. <laughs> we are tied, sis. So, no yeah. Word. I, yeah. So I'm like, I feel, I feel like I, I said to him, like, we're in this spiritual vortex. We're in this there's there's a the, the ancestors there's a there's a spiritual drum beat going like we can't see but if you can hear it and you don't listen if you can hear it and you ignore it woe to you because there's a calling and a culling there's there's something going on come on now teach you, you can you can you know chase them dollars and chase them them algorithms and you can chase 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 what your masters put in front of you or you can sit in your purpose and do the thing that you were put here to do that okay. now there are too many of us lined up to do together. You can go be individualistic. You can go ahead and be selfish or you come together, but you do that individual thing at your own peril because no longer will there be, and there's too many of us that no, no, there's yes. not space for you to do that thing and still profit. And I'm looking at Pharrell starting a whole thing where he's selling his stuff. And I was like, that's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm like, there's a lot of interesting things happening. Uh, as I mentioned. Pharrell, the, the new black. I don't no, know. It's a little different. Yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. I love, I, you know, I was very critical of that new black commentary, but we're human. We make our moves. And you're right. The more this thing resets to what we know to be true, the more people are free to be themselves and the more we're free to be ourselves, the more we see our beauty. That's very encouraging. So he's, he's got another thing. He's doing. Well, he's selling stuff. Um, much the way we did drops here um, yeah. and drops are not, you know, tell far, but we're, we're, we're controlling our own. Yes. Thing. I'm thinking, you know, like diamonds, you know, diamonds made up marketing tool by the beers. Uh, and I won't get too into it, but you know they're not the most precious of all uh, stones. But many no. people have died, and and so many people have been harmed with for this marketing tool for something that's not very rare at all. That's right. Uh, and then we bought into it with the engagement thing and all of the bridal and all. You know, it's like <laughs> are we are we so simple? Yes, we are. Yeah, and but it just is it's that simple. It should be that simple to reverse engineer it, which is to oh no question make the thing that is actually valuable valuable and and. and you know, once we stop allowing ourselves to be the center of somebody else's uh, commerce and, and success and we center ourselves, it's, it, it, it becomes really easy. And it's so clear. The path is so clear for me. I just I just see it. And so layup. I told Kwame, I said, this is a layup. This is a layup. Right at the rim. What are we doing? This is a layup. Oh, wow. OK. Uh, I, as you were talking, I was thinking because I hadn't had a chance to look at the paper yet. I used to do this in, in class with my students uh, coming in the morning. And when we talk about the rape of Africa in the 19th century, Cecil Rhodes and De Beers and uh, Anglo-American uh, Corporation, I would I would have the papers with me, the morning papers, and I would show them the New York Times, and I would say, I'm not going to, and I'm not going to do it here, I'm just going to tell you what I would do. 
because I opened it and confirmed. I would say, I want y'all to stop me. And I walk up and down the aisle. I say, y'all stop me when you see the first jewelry ad. Open it up. I'm going to pass two pages. Wait, you, <laughs> there's one right there. There's one right there. Yeah, how about that? On the front, on the front joint. No, no, open the page. First page. Open it. Open the page. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. Bam. Bam. Right there. Right. Yeah. I said, I ain't going to do it. And it bled on over into my hand. No question. It is right there. Exactly. We ain't going to get no free advertising. But to your point, I mean, and we all know, of course, we know this because it's true. Um, Every kiss begins with K. So, I mean, if, but if you think you can somehow outswag us in terms of ads, I mean, come on now. You got cats who are just saying things because they know it rhymes and they know black people consume that stuff. And then these companies sat back like, we're getting free advertising until they get smart to it. So when Run MC say, my Adidas, you know, <laughs> roam through closet floors and roam all over Coliseum floors, <laughs> you know, and Adidas is like, huh? Oh, wow. When I went on stage at Live Aid, all the people prayed and the poor guy paid. Actually, that's not quite true, uh, Rem Sims, but it's cool. I mean, because Adidas is like, no problem. And then the next easy step a couple of years later is busting them past the Cavassier. Cavassier is like, yes, yes. And then, of course, Jay is like, you know, feel more Prada jeans, Gucci bra, feel more uh, jeans. Take that off. Okay, right. Give it to me. Give us that. Yeah. And, the, and the companies are like, yeah, give it to me. Louis Vuitton, Don. Okay, here we go. By then they're getting paid, of course. Uh, but not not anything close to what the company's getting paid. But you know, like you said, taking our power back. So Pharrell is doing that beautiful. Kiki Palmer's doing that beautiful. My brother, Kwame. My goodness. Prof, you bring back when I mean, yeah, man, you bring back. So I remember one time we were in Newark. Oh my God. And I knew his uh, no, his father, the great. E. Curtis Alexander, as you say, a publisher, ECA and Associates, ECA Publishing. Curtis Alexander, for a long time, was one of the very few, and for many books, the only person who republished books that were impossible to find. So I'd be talking to John Henry Clark, and John Henry Clark, or John Henry Clark be giving a public lecture. And when when he and I would talk, I would ask him very specific questions, because, as you say, you don't bother nobody. I don't bother nobody. And this is a protocol for me, you know, particularly with elders. You don't waste elders time. So, you know, you come to an elder and you say to an elder. So um, what makes you what do you think you're so popular? OK, nah. so you're a journalist, you know, and at that point, no. When I would ask John Henry Clark questions it was based on me reading something he wrote or hearing something he said and then when i would be able to sit with him or i call him or we talk i would ask him very specific questions and that of course would open up a different kind of conversation well more than a few times our conversations anchored around someone he didn't know but one of his very close friends and senior associates knew john glover jackson out of south carolina and by the way i was on with the comedic institute of health and human development in south carolina columbia south carolina uh, Dr. Bill Gunn, who has taught at the HBCUs down there for years, Benedict College in Columbia, the great Richard Allen University, which we talked about in the context of Dave Chappelle quite some time ago, whose grandfather was one of the people affiliated with the founding of Allen and so many other things. But at any rate, uh, my man, Bernie Gallman, who is a uh, an avid, he is a Karen Hunter stan, as the young people would say, a devotee. 
In fact, uh, where I was last night, which I'll talk about in a minute, I was walking into the event, crossing the street. And this brother, <laughs> this brother rolls down his window and says, that's the car. I look around. Hey, what's going on, brother? He said, I'm listening to Karen right now. <laughs> I mean, when I tell you, you can't make this up. I mean, so, you know, the global majority is real, y'all. Some of y'all may not know, but if you know, you know, as the kids would say, I-K-N-Y-N. But at any rate, so uh, I was with them virtually, of course. And, and of course, the hurricane has hit, you know, Florida. I saw the campus of Bethune-Cookman. Looked like it tore up some buildings there. It was It hit Columbia and South Carolina. Uh, yesterday is passed through and is still, you know, now downgraded, but still dangerous. But at any rate, thinking about Curtis Alexander and ECA uh, Associates, it reminds me of John Clark and I talking about Hubert Henry Harrison. And this would be familiar to anybody who was there uh, on, uh, I guess that was Thursday night. I lose track of the days, which is almost a beautiful thing. If you're working the ancient Egyptians in Book of Tao they would say love of what you do, love of your work strips you of a sense of time and space. So it isn't that you're losing track of days because you're disoriented. You're losing track of the abstract concept because you are so engaged in the human and the social in the work uh, that gives our lives meaning, much of our lives meaning. But at any rate, uh, we would talk about Hubert Harrison. John Clark used to swear by Hubert Harrison because John Jackson, his friend, who was from South Carolina, who he met in New York after he moved to New York uh, in 1933. By the time John Henry Clark moved to New York in 1933, he was 15 years old. I'm sorry. He, had been, he was born in 1915, so he was 18 years old, I guess that would be. And he didn't meet this brother, Hubert Henry Harrison, who was from the Caribbean, from the Danish West Indies, so to speak, St. Croix. Hubert Harrison gave Marcus Garvey his first public speaking engagement when Garvey came to New York. Uh, it's in Roy Anderson's uh, excellent film, African Redemption. He talks about Hubert Harrison a little bit. And if you want to read about Hubert Harrison, of course, you can get Jeffrey Babcock Perry's two volumes, both telephone book size on Hubert Harrison. I'm not going to get up and look at because we've talked about Harrison before, and this isn't what this is about. We've done a who you should know about Hubert Harrison over in the narrative side. So if you all want to know more about that, you should read those books. So come on over and get that bibliography from us because we are truly establishing collectively. Everybody's contributing this this massive archive, living archive, not just documents, but most importantly, human conversations around the things we're reading and discussing. But at any rate, so Dr. Clark never knew Hubert Harrison, but John Jackson knew him. And John Jackson introduced John Henry Clark to the work of Hubert Harrison. In many ways, we're still living with that echo because the study group that they had, here we are in study group the largest study group, the largest Africana studies class. It's so funny after I got off, uh, we we got off our conversation, our regular conversation, conversation on last Saturday when I was in Atlanta, I logged into the board meeting for the National Council of Black Studies. And they talk, <laughs> one of the things that came up was in the context of the academic field and discipline of Africana studies, how do we expand our ability to connect with folks who are not at the university? And one of the first things one of the board members said was, we have to figure out a way, Dr. Carr, to loop in that largest Africana studies class in the world. These are all academics. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, yeah, well, we're doing what we do. So, you know, we'll figure out ways to do that. I said to myself, I'm writing now, I'm taking my notes and we will. But at any rate, 
that this study group we're in, this now I say group, this study formation, especially office hours, and every Monday night, office hours is just mind blowing. Man, last Monday, you know, I don't know about you, probably, but I've heard so many, I've gotten so many comments and, and heard people talking about directly with me in exchanges about the compelling power of, you know, when Daryl came on in particular. Uh, but not just Daryl. I mean, the whole conversation around reparations and what's going on in California. We have a global reach. So, I mean, I get too far afield because Kwame is at the center of the story we're about to tell. So, John Jackson, out of South Carolina, nominated John Henry Clark for membership in the small study group they had in Harlem in the 1930s. It was called the Old Harlem History Club, as Dr. Clark used to call it. Uh, the old, old, because by then almost everybody had made transition. Willis N. Huggins, sometimes William Hansberry would come up from D.C. He was on the faculty at Howard, um, the uncle of the Rain Hansberry, but most importantly, uh, a pioneer in the study of classical Africa, Nubia, Egypt, or Kemet, as Dr. Bailey will remind us. And so they had this meeting, this regular meeting, this regular meeting was in the basement of the Harlem YMCA. And John Jackson brought John Henry Clark there. And that was where John Henry Clark was introduced to many of these readers and writers, many of these scholars, and began to do his own work. And one of the people he was introduced to was a man who had made transition in 1927, Hubert Henry Harrison. So he was, uh, John Clark was a Hubert Henry Harrison stan, as was John G. Jackson. John G. Jackson, of course, who uh, published a small pamphlet on Hubert Harrison called Hubert Henry Harrison, The Black Socrates. I'll resist the urge to go into Harrison again, go over the narrative. You'll see the long conversation we had about Hubert Harrison, who with along with August Wilson and Coretta Scott King share a birthday. We talked about that context as well. So what does it got to do with Kwame Alexander? Well, his father, Curtis Alexander, made it his business because Curtis Alexander was a comrade of, in some ways, contemporary of, junior contemporary. He was younger than John Clark, John Jackson, and all them, Yosef Benyakin and Dr. Ben and all them, Edward Scobie and all them. But Baba Curtis made it his business to find these books that John Clark and others would constantly tell us to read because then you go to the bookstore, they're out of print. Damn, it's out of print. You go to the library, uh, <laughs> no more X out of Columbus, Ohio, the great Nomo X, who always reminded us watching civil rights documentaries where they sicken dogs and fire hose on black people. In the words of Nomo X, always, always kill that dog. Always, always cut that hose. You know what he said? That dog had been me, always kill that dog. I never forget no man, Nomo X. The Afro set, that's a whole nother thing. We had to talk about that another day. But um, my man, Baba Kwame, Kwesi Ohini, out of Detroit, these are the Negroes that would go into the public libraries and engage in what they call liberation work. I'm not checking this book out the library. It shouldn't be in the first place. So sometimes they would toss the books out the windows to a waiting co-conspirator. Uh, sometimes they would just walk out because before metal detectors. And then they would make copies of whatever books they had liberated from the library. And uh, then we all have, they made the People's Library. Well, E. Curtis Alexander, when he would get a copy of Hubert Harrison's When Africa Awakes, or Hubert Harrison's collection of, of, of columns, The Negro and the Nation. E. Curtis Alexander would make copies and then print and bind the book. Because most of these books were way past copyright. 
meaning nobody, you know, was checking for profit. And he would make those books available to the community. The first time I met Kwame's father was at a book fair in Columbus, Ohio, that was put on regularly by our brother Ak Akbar Muhammad. Some of y'all know Akbar, uh, a senior lieutenant in the Nation of Islam, uh, lived for a time in West Africa, a book man, Baba Akbar. Akbar would put on, and, and the proprietor of a, a book sales formation called Akbar's Books and Things. And I was a graduate student in, in Ohio State at the time. And we lived for Akbar's book fair he would bring to, St. Louis is where his base operations was, but he would bring the book fair to Columbus, one of the stops. And at Akbar's Books and Things, at book fair, you could get books you couldn't find anywhere else. This is long before you know, a few keystrokes and you might be able to track something down. And then, of course, once you have the Internet, increasingly now people try to price match and they don't know nothing about the books. So don't be looking on Amazon for a lot of the books. And people say, Dr. Carr, you mentioned a book and I went looking for it on Amazon. It was a thousand dollars because the algorithm doesn't recognize where to get it. Baba Nati got that book in everyone's place up in Baltimore. Holly and them got it. Jonathan got a few copies at Sankofa. And if you look at our book list in, in narrative, our bookstore list, you got to go to SO1 for that. Or you got to go to Marcus Books for that. Or you got to go, you know, you can find, but Amazon don't know nothing about it. You understand? They just see these things as widgets. Well, Curtis Alexander, I'll never forget. Akbar Books and Things, Book Fair. They setting up everybody they haven't opened the book fair yet. this is a saturday morning i think the book fair opened at like nine the featured speaker and you appreciate this prof hunter uh one of your comrades in the in the sainted work in the divine work of broadcast because nothing will ever displace radio because you got to make up the images in your mind and the in the word is going right in your ear that's why some of y'all are listening to this as podcasts it's very important but your comrade in that work the great bob law Bob Law was the featured speaker that day at the book fair. So I'm coming to hear Bob Law because I had spent the summer of 1989 in New York and I would be dragging my behind into the NAACP legal defense fund uh, for work when I was clerking there. Uh, I would be half asleep in the morning when I get on the train in Jersey City and come down to lower Manhattan and get off World Trade Center and go up to 99 Hudson Street because I stayed up all night listening to Bob Law. Because remember, Bob Law's radio show <laughs> was like three, four o'clock in the morning and you couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get off night talk, man. And so, of course, consciousness is the way that we must think. So, Baba John Henry Clark reminds us, I'm in heaven. I'm laying in this bed in Jersey City, listening to Bob Law, writing down notes for books. I'm on a intern salary, which ain't no money at all. The only reason I can stay that close to New York is because I'm living in a room that was rented to me for dirt cheap by the parents of one of my colleagues at the law school who was like, oh, my mom and them live in Jersey. They got a room. And I said, well, how much y'all want? He said, oh, no, we all want something. So no, I'm from Tennessee. There's a protocol governance i gotta get y'all something but everything else i was buying books <laughs> books all summer so at any rate listening to bob law so bob law's coming i ain't never seen bob law in person never seen the big man you know they still got like it is on television in new york when i was watching the great gil noble and all that you know so these are, you know this is the generation before you and me prof but you know these are the people who you inherited that baton from it's very serious when you listen to them on the radio when they like when people listen to you Man, stop me in the street last night. I'm listening to Karen right now. In other words, th these are the people who build community. You you convene community. So anyway, I'm in 
uh, I come into the to the room in Columbus, this big auditorium. I forget what's the armory somewhere downtown Columbus, Akbar's Book Fair, and I'm like, yeah, here we go. So I'm there at like eight o'clock. The thing started nine. Why? I didn't make my calculation. The rent money I didn't touch, but everything else I converted to dollars. And tapped a couple of my friends and, and students, y'all loan me the money. Why? Because I'm spending everything but the rent money. Light bill, don't worry about that. I can miss a month. I figure I'll catch it up. I'm spending everything because it's the one shot to get things. And who am I coming there for? I want to see Akbar. I want to hear Bob Law and see him in person and shake his hand. But the man I am coming for is E. Curtis Alexander, ECA Publishers. Why? Because Curtis got the stuff you can't get from anywhere else. He got them books John Rick Hart be talking about. And I got a list. I want Albert Church Ward. I want Gerald Massey. I want all of Hubert Henry Harrison. And he got stuff I don't even know I want yet. I got to get there and get it. Now, mind you, this is around the same time that Paul Coates at Black Classic Press begins many of these books he republishes with John Henry Clark's direction some of these same books, uh, Flora Shaw Lugard, A Tropical Dependency. Um, I mean, you name it, a number of different books. I could start talking about them. Hubert Henry Harrison's book, When Africa Awakes. Now Black Classic Press is going to take the baton and run alongside E. Curtis Alexander. But this is before Paul starts republishing some of these books. All right. And of course, Paul Coates is a legend even then. But Paul Coates in Baltimore. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Akbar bringing the bookstore. And word on the street is E. Curtis Alexander going to be here. So I'm there at 8 o'clock. I'm looking in, it's locked. But every time they open the door for a vendor to come in, I'm like, I should just go in there. I should just go in there. And then, you know, it's an auditorium, right? So you got the tables, you know how vendors do. It's like a rectangle. All the tables are surrounded. And then the stage is up front. That's where Bob and them are going to be. And in the middle of the floor of the auditorium, like almost like an island, there are no seats or anything, like an island, are some folding tables, those long folded tables, not yet uh, built. So you have them pull the legs out and put them in a, but they're, but they're laying, I'm like, what are those doing? And who then, as I'm looking and seeing people go in, the door opens, I look back, here comes this tall dude pulling this big cart with all these boxes. I know his face, cause I got a couple of his books from, uh, Unimalzat at Liberation back in 89. This is like 1991, maybe 1991. That's E. Curtis Alexander. He's bringing the books. He's coming in. So I hold the door for Curtis Alexander moves through. All right. Now, Kwame's a little boy. Kwame's just a little younger than me. That's why he called me the OG. He said, he, he, Curtis Alexander by himself. Alexander, I said, can I help you? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold that door for me. So he moves in with this, this huge cart with all these boxes. So I just walk with him. Now I'm I done deputized myself. He goes straight to the middle of the floor. And I said, do you need help? He said, would you mind helping me? I said, not at all. I said, do you have Hubert Henry Harrison went after a waste? <laughs> he said, of course I do, brother. I said, what? I said, do you have the Negro in the nation? He said, yes, I do. I said, wait, do you have signs and symbols of primordial man, Albert Church War? I have them all. Do you have Godfrey Higgins, Anacalypsis? I have them all. And then he holds his hands out like this, and price is better than the white man. 
<laughs> I'm, there, I'm in heaven. I'm about to be broke. I need to go get the rent money. I might have to get rent money. And then this one says to me, says, if you help me build this island and put these tables up and help me sell, I will give you a deep discount on everything. I almost cried. Kwame Alexander is my man. His daddy made sure I had all those books, John Clark and John Jackson and Amos Wilson and all the people was talking about. I had those books from Curtis Alexander. Now, Kwame, let me end with this. This is when, I mean, this, this is one of the early times me and Kwame interacted. Fast forward to Newark, St. Rocco's High School in Newark. We had the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, our ASCAP conference in 1992. Supposed to be a city college, but this is the time when the lynch mob was out for Leonard Jeffries. And the great stalwarts of education in New York could not intervene. Uh, they were trying to fire Leonard Jeffries at City College. Around that same time, and maybe a little later, you see, you know, Adelaide Sanford, who is trying to fight for us at the level of the New York State Board of Regents. They get after her around this curriculum of inclusion. This is the curriculum wars, if y'all want to read about it. In fact, I talked about it last week in Atlanta. I pulled up my one of my copies of uh, Arthur Schlesinger's book, The Disuniting of America. All this CRT business, no, this ain't, mm -mm, mm -mm, this ain't new. If you go back to the early 90s, the attack was on all the African Senate scholars, Asa Hilliard, John Henry Clark, Malana Karinga, uh, uh, you name it, Leonard Jeffries, Malefi Asante, James Turner, you name Marimba Ani, then, you know, known as Donna Marimba Richards in some circles, Vivian Gordon. Um, I'm naming some of the sisters that all the folks who talk about feminism and womanism, it's always interesting to me how they talk about all these women and they, they never mention Vivian Gordon. They never mention Marima Ani. They never mention Sharcy uh, McIntyre. And that tells me either one of two things. Either one, you don't know. And I know you know, because some of y'all are my friends. Number two, you can't reconcile these Pan-African internationalists with this narrow thing that you're trying to pull off for profit. And I understand. No, no problem. I understand. We all got to negotiate and, and navigate. Anyway, so. We're in we're in Jersey because the African centered attack is heavy. And you know this, of course, Prof, because that's your neck of the woods. You know, Newark don't play that. <laughs> City College <laughs> won't let Leonard Jeffries, you know, St. Rocco's like, bet, come on, let them come over here. And so we have the conference on a turn of a dime in March 92 at St. Rocco's. Curtis Alexander is set up. My God. Hey, y'all, we weren't even supposed to talk about it this morning, but the ancestors had a different plan. That's what we So we are in, uh, all the vendors are in the basement of St. Rocco's. The conference is being held in all the classrooms of St. Rocco's and the plenaries are being held. The big gatherings in between the workshops are being held in the auditorium. Well, there's overflow because, you know, this is the African-centered conference and everybody is there. And we're on the East Coast and we're in the New York, New Jersey area, which means all the folks who are at First World, you know, Mama Keff and them, Baba Bill, everybody's coming over. So everybody you can think of who are in the bookstores all over the country and the world are, many of them live on the East Coast and then everybody else is coming in anyway. So we're all there. The opening plenary was John Clark, Yosef Benyakinen, Jacob Carruthers. Oh man, I can't name everybody, but it was, it was kind of, you know, and then Zingaratabisha Heru, who was the president of ASCAP, uh, Dr. Ben had brought this large papyrus back, this wall-sized papyrus back from Kemet that he presented to her. It was a beautiful thing. We all sitting there. And we we young people, so we just like, wow, this is, I can't believe we're here. So 
after the session comes up, and I should preface this by saying E. Curtis Alexander printed a number of books that were out of print and out of print for a long time. So he wasn't violating no copywriting. Then he had another category of books he print that printed that were original works. Some of his stuff, uh, some things like, it would be like uh, what we are mapping out now uh, in this formation. We're in Narrative and Nubia because, I mean, we got so much stuff now. We are, what, 135 and counting. And so all of these sessions, transcribed, edited, moved around, we got plans, right? We know that. Not just films, not just other productions, but books. We know that. And we got everything lined up. We do what we do, right? So at any rate, Curse Alexander would sometimes publish either transcripts or nuggets from speeches, from lectures, from presentations. So he had a book called Axioms and Quotations of Yosef Ben-Yakinen. And on the back of the book was Dr. Ben and uh, Baba Curtis together because they know each other well. They've traveled, you know, and he's saying this smile on the back. And then the book was full of like sayings of Dr. Ben, quotations from Dr. Ben, pieces of uh, book lists from Dr. Ben, you know, the observations of Dr. Ben, small book, probably not even a hundred pages. And I, I would it'd be impossible for me to find a copy of that around here now. Probably all my copies probably in storage. I do not have a signed copy of Yosef Benyakinen's axioms and quotations of uh, Yosef Benyakinen. I'm going to tell you why. After that plenary that morning, somebody went up there with a copy of that book that E. Curtis Alexander was selling on the bottom floor, axioms and quotations, and presented it to Dr. Ben to sign. Ben looked at the book. Ben said, where you get this book? I just bought it from Curtis Alexander downstairs. He didn't give me no money for this book. Now you're a publisher, Professor Hearn. So you know where I'm going with this, right? I look down. I, we looking at this now. We we standing in front of the stage. John R. Clark, Yosef Ben Yakin, and sitting next to each other. Dr. Ben turns to Dr. Clark, his friend, and said, John, look at this. John R. Clark is blind. Ben is so outraged. He shoves this book under the nose of his friend and said, John, look at this. John Clark can't see that book. <laughs> he said, what? Curtis published this book? I didn't get no money. Now, you got to know Dr. Ben. There's huge backstories to all this. So I'm just, I'm going to be short in this very because we got to get to Kwame. So he showed the book. Of course, he can't see the book. He said, where is he? Somebody, and it's, it's people could co-sign. There's a lot of people who we know. That, I don't want to say, was Mario there? I don't, Mario, I don't think Mario was there. Tony Browder was there, though, Naeem Akbar. It was a lot of, okay? And so, and somewhere, I do believe there is a recording of this. Why? Because this is the period when everybody run around with tape recorders so they could record the lectures, man. And I saw at least a couple of hands with tape recorders. I ain't gonna name no names, but I, anyway. So, Ben gets up. He, oh, man. Ben gets up, comes down. You know them high school auditoriums. Comes down off that wooden stage, down them steps, and takes off going toward the back of the auditorium to go downstairs to confront E. Curtis Alexander for selling axioms and quotations of Yosef and Yachin, and he ain't seen no money. <laughs> this was a big thing, by the way, in the 90s, because, you know, people would make recordings of lectures and stuff, and then they would sell the tapes, and then people who gave the lecture would be like, what? And it, but most people let it pass because though that money was keeping in circulation a lot of black vendors. You know, that's what we do. Like I said, Barack Obama, I give Barack Obama incredible credit, full credit. This may have been the most important 
uh, thing that Barack Obama did. When Barack Obama got uh, got elected, there were so many Negroes selling T-shirts and coffee mugs that he probably kept people's lights on. I don't know about policy, but but I do know about that. But at any rate, so when so Ben gets downstairs and we are in tow like smoke off a of fire, like little boys going ready to see a schoolyard fight behind an old man now. <laughs> Meanwhile, as people in the front saying, Dr. Ben, calm down, you can have a stroke. No, I want to see, I want to see. So he gets downstairs. Curtis happens to not be at the table. So like I helped Curtis Alexander sell books at uh, Akbar Books and Things when in Columbus when he had, when he had the, the book fair there. Who, Professor Hunter, do you think is manning the table for ECA and Associates Publishers at that time. A little Kwame. Kwame is standing there at the table when Yosef Benyakin and a trail of people who are all too hyped to see a confrontation come busting in the vendors. Yosef Benyakin to my brother, Kwame Alexander. Where's your daddy? <laughs> Kwame looking like, wait, wait, what? Wait, what? Where you? Where's your daddy? Huh? And Dr. Ben, you know, Dr. Ben, he from he from Puerto Rico. And you know, he has a that beautiful lilting uh 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 voice of the lyrical voice of the Caribbean, and he's talking fast, and his teeth might come out. <laughs> so Ben <laughs> I saw him in London and I had a box of books, and I'm telling you right now, if you don't say it under me, I need to you don't understand. I don't want to know. Kwame don't know nothing about it. And curse happened to not be at the table. So, in that moment, we calmed Dr. Ben down. Kwame, my brother, never loses his cool. Or I would tell him, yes, sir, yes, sir. Deeply, it's that same spirit that you encountered with him when you was talking to him. That's him. He's been like that since he was a kid. And in that moment, I felt so sorry for him. Because, again, this is something, and eventually, of course, it got worked out. Because Ben would use it, he might go, he might go completely over the top off something that he really shouldn't, but nobody know. And then later, what happened? Well, you know, I talked to Curtis and he was just, dude, you ain't saying that in front of everybody. Because at that point, he had moved into performance, I think, a little bit, right? It wasn't going to be no fight. Although Ben did look like he'd probably fight somebody. Who he going to fight, right? But over the years, Kwame Alexander, who is now in the social structure, as you know, as, we, as you opened up with, huge book awards, all the stuff. He was down at the Kennedy Center doing stuff, particularly YA, so a uh, crossover, rebound. I mean, I recommend Curtis, uh, uh, Kwame Alexander's books. He's a poet by training. In fact, I got a little staple volume over there he did with Jelani Cobb and them, Tana, I see all them boys when they was in college. You know what I'm saying? I don't even know if they got copies. I'm sure they do, but I mean, little staple volume. I said, look at this. But, so he started as a poet, right? And then he does the, his YA stuff, he's major all over the globe. But as just so people know, in terms of the governance formation, that man comes out of a governance formation and he writes about this. Is it booked? Booked might be. I don't know, Prof. Did you all talk about any of his publications? Well, he was on to talk about um, The Door of No Return, which I just downloaded into my Kindle, which is you want to talk about writing. And, you know, chapter one is the Sankofa bird, you know, is a piece of art. And he is telling the story of black boys and girls before there was, he said, you know, our history didn't start in 1619. I was like, Dr. Carr, I hear it. 
Um, Curtis Alexander. Yeah, <laughs> Curtis Alexander, which I, I didn't know. Exactly. You know I was like, oh, it's the same spirit. That's why I was like, this is not happening in the universe because the drum beat is the same when you hear it, right? And so he's like, Black Joy was before we were snatched up. So it's like a brother. Uh, he's got a bully. He's in love with his little girl. Uh, the bully's in love with the girl. So I'm telling a story of humanity in this book. And I love YA books because most YA writers can write their asses off. First, no some of the best writing you will ever find. Uh, so I, I had to download it and I was reading it and it reads like poetry. You know, he's he's starting off. I mean, it's just uh chef's kiss to him. Mm-hmm. But as I'm as I'm, you know, so he's on to promote the book that came out this week. And I, I had a conversation, as I mentioned, that I didn't expect to have with somebody that I hope will become a lifelong friend because oh, his yeah, mind for sure. His mind, man, it's just ooh, ooh. He said that, you know, it starts there was a time, dot dot dot, ellipses. Many seasons ago, dot, 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 when our people were the sole supplier of the purest and most valuable gold in the world, the river was bedded with enough gold to make a century of royal stools for the Ashanti kings, a thousand shiny bracelets for their wives. Then came the foreigners, invaders disguised as friends, pretending to be students of our way with only one lesson to learn, how to steal our fortunes. And it goes on and talks about the Offen River, but you know we're learning about Ghana and that coast and everything through the eyes and lens of young people. But he's telling his given history because it's in his blood. And there's a map of the kingdom. You know, the Asante King. I mean, it's just Kumasi. I mean, the whole, just like I'm sitting here as I'm working today on a book of with the Adinkra symbols. Yeah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Shout out to Nana Yao and Michelle Yafo. I'm working on this book because we're about to do a drop for Kwanzaa and yes. so these symbols and I'm getting it right. Cause I'm you now going to our team that's in Ghana. Is this right? Is this definition right? Cause I, I don't want to be a colonizer. I'm not from there. I, I want to make sure it is right. right. hundred years from now, we got to get it right now. So that's right. yeah, this is beautiful. That's right. And that's, man, that is such a, that's so powerful. I mean, and you know, it's funny. First of all, yes. And thank you for affirming what I suspected and what many of us suspected, which are YA writers are just the best YA writers. Just, I mean, cause it's clear. Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time. I mean, if you read children's books and YA books, you can get a quicker, it's almost like mainlining the memory, especially in a society where we don't read the dense academic tomes the same way. And many people never pick up a book, but they will pick up that book. And if you do, then when you, when you finally work your way into born in blackness, You've, uh, you you recognize everything. Kwame yeah. gave you a map. No question. <laughs> no question. I mean, half my library is YA. I, I, make, I make no, I'm not even em, embarrassed to say that. You know, no. half my novel reading, YA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking And so funny, it's so funny. His, he narrates an autobiographical, he gives us an autobiography of sorts in a fictional form in a previous book he wrote called Booked, B O O K E D. Mm. In book, he tells the story of his relationship with his father, but it ain't him. You know what I'm saying? He uses the character. In other words, here's a kid who's into sports. I don't want to say it was soccer. He was a soccer. Ba- soccer. soccer. Was soccer. soccer. Yeah, because because I think uh, rebound was the basketball player. But it's dad, and then crossover. The cross crossover. Right there. Is it the three? Uh, I forget. It's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. Oh, yeah. Crossover, yeah. rebound. Uh, I think it's a trilogy. Okay, crossover. I keep a copy of booked because I and see that's the other thing. You know. 
people ask all the time, like you asked me what last week or week, week before last, you like when you close your eyes and you see in that book, absolutely. Because I, that's one reason why I like to go around. I need to I like to go different places when I'm reading certain things. If I want to remember something, if I'm reading a book, like I just got this copy, Brian Jones, who is there in the New York area. He's director of New York Public Library Center for Educators and Schools. Um, he sent me this. Uh, he reached out to me and said, I want you, I'm going to, I need to talk to him. I hope you should talk to him too. It's called the Tuskegee Student Uprising, a history. Because a lot of people talk about the Black University concept. They think of Howard University. They may think of the Atlanta University Center, Abdullah Kalamite. But at Tuskegee, they had this Black University fight in the 60s. And, you know, I love Tuskegee. I mean, my mom was from there, uh, 45 minutes from Tuskegee. And I've always had that kind of feeling for Tuskegee. And so what uh, Brother Jones is doing is telling the story of how black power looked in the South. And in fact, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Or let me just put this marker down before we go forward. Uh, the 4th of October is uh, Rap Brown's birthday. Hubert Rap Brown out of, out of uh, Louisiana, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who has been in lockdown the last 20 years as a political prisoner for a murder he didn't commit. But you know how the United States of America does. They put your ass in jail, unless you're Matt Getz or... Um, uh, Donald Trump, shout out to that stooge on the, the court of uh, the uh, federal bench in Florida who just continues to try to keep her master out of jail. But anyway, so if I when I when I and I'll probably stick this in the bag, it's a little rainy around here today. At some point today, when I can, I'm going to slip somewhere where I can read maybe 100 pages. Oh, maybe I could get away with st sitting there till I finish the book. But the point is, when you go to us, when I go to a certain place, when I'm thinking about that book, when, I'm, when I want to remember something from the book, I put myself back in where I was when I was reading it. When I read Booked, I was sitting at a coffee shop on Capitol Hill, coffee, uh, you know, uh, store, Pret, Pret-a-Manger, which is really a British chain. You know, Oz and them know. And by the way, shout out to, uh, to Adesoje and Nduku, Nduku and uh, Aya. I saw all of them last night. I'll tell y'all about that in a minute. In person, a lot of Nubians. Uh, and I'm like, wow, look at y'all. Oh my goodness. Look at it. Anyway, um, my sister, Denise, who was in Nubian, uh, also my colleague at Howard university, uh, who was there with her son. I'm like, wow, look at us. We all here. But anyway, so, so Osnum, all you UK Africans know, Pret, Pret jumped upon. And I like Pret because the coffee is like my granddaddy coffee, you know, or as the man said, when, Jan when Jack Johnson beat Jim Jeffries and, he, and the brother walked into the, uh, into the restaurant and was like, I want some coffee and eggs. I want my eggs weak, yellow, and runny like Jim Jeffries, and I need that coffee hot, black, and strong like Jack Johnson, at, at which point they lynched him. But at any rate, uh, the hot, black, and strong is what Pret serves. I'm sitting reading booked, and I couldn't put it down. I'm drinking cup after cup of coffee, sitting outside at Pret-a-Manger across the street from the Starbucks, which I don't like their coffee. It's too bitter. Probably about four blocks from the Library of Congress on the other side, back side of Capitol Hill. And I can't put the book down because what it really is, is a love letter to his father. I love sports. My daddy was like, you're going to read a book every day. You're going to do these, uh, these vocabulary words every day. And the kid is like, I hated it until I loved it. So when he's writing, what you're reading from Kwame Alexander is how he literally was trained by one of the great bookmen of the era, the great E. Curtis Alexander. And all of the people that Curtis Alexander 
introduced him to, who Kwame knew from a child all the way up through now. So Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, Mama Sharcy, all the way nobles, Jacob Carruthers, and then brings all that energy to an HBCU where he interacts with other people. I mean, Tanahasi Coates is the son of Paul Coates. So he 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 ain't coming to Howard for his blackness. He is, however, coming to meet others who are like him and then get a faculty like Ron Walters and others who will come back to in about 10 minutes, who is helping them shape that. So Kurt, Kwame has been shaped by this a long time. So when you get a gift like his young adult fiction, what you're really getting is the keys to a deep immersion in governance, in ways of knowing, in cultural meaning making, in movement and memory. And so the social structure, so when you ask him, you know, what about the black public side? What about the independent publishing side? I think now we are, and you of course have been at this for quite some time in terms of this rhythm of how do we build our formations? And of course, Narrative Newbie is just a quantum leap into that space, the continuing iteration of what you've been doing. At the same time that we leverage resources from social structure formations. So as Stevie Wonder, who bought, you know, was a KPLA uh, in, in Los Angeles, had the radio station, was still there. I think it's where Tyler Smiley has his show now. But at any rate, Stevie Wonder, who said, we're going to have our independent stuff. And if you're going to release this uh, billion YouTube view years later and huge million selling platinum release and win all the awards, Grammy in 96, Song of the Year in 95. Yeah, I'm going to need 95% of that publishing. <laughs> oh, we see what you're doing. Kwame represents that. So I'll live with this with, for now with, with our brother. After I finished book sitting there at Pret-a-Manger, as I sit there, I closed that book and I sat there for a long time. I picked up my phone. I texted Kwame. I said, brother, you put your foot in this one. I could see your daddy as clear as day. I was back in that auditorium in Columbus, Ohio at Akbar's book fair. Because <laughs> Curtis Alexander, I should say one other thing about Curtis. And he texted me back. Oh, thank you, brother. That means a lot coming from you. I'm saying, nah, man. Because you are our representative in spaces where people like me, you know, I find myself in those spaces from time to time, but I'm not, I, I'm not a pioneer in those spaces. I don't go in those spaces. So I love it when I hear him on NPR. I love it more when I hear that he was with you on Sirius. And as you see him on Good Morning America, some and he got he got his father's smile. So that 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 kind of calm, like, you know, that's that, that's that smile and that spirit. And I'm sitting there laughing the whole time. I'm like, he's a good brother. He ain't never fake. That's who he is. But y'all have no idea that you are inviting into this space something that can transform the way we look at the world. And that many of the people who surrounded him are people who wouldn't give y'all a dollar, wouldn't pee on you, and wouldn't throw a cup of water on you if you was on fire. But, you know, it's all love. Now, you know, Kwame got a different spirit. He going to be wherever people are of common humanity. and he, But he's not ever going to shine he ain't going to step and fetch. He ain't going to change it up. He's going to introduce into that space who we are. And that's the way governance formation should interact with a social structure. As you said, Pro, I'm not changing who I am. Stevie Wonder ain't changing who he is. Y'all love Stevie Wonder so much, no question. You better listen to Pastime Paradise. You better listen to Living Just Enough for the City. You better listen to Stevie Wonder. We've talked about Stevie Wonder. So the other thing about Curtis Alexander, I'll say real quickly, is Curtis Alexander is was he and I were in a conversation that led to me getting hired at Howard. We were at the National Council of Black Studies, ironically, in North Carolina. This would have been around 1992. It was spring of 1992, March 1992. We're in, we're in, we're in uh, North Carolina. And we're in a room, he and I, and a couple other panelists who I've forgotten who they were. 
you know how those panels go. You got like four people on a panel. You got like an hour and 10 minutes. Everybody get 10 minutes. Then you had a question to answer, this kind of thing. And we're talking about books. We're talking about books. We're talking about history. I forget the, even the name of the thing. But we were in there and then it went past, It went to the hour and whatever it was, hour and 10 minutes, hour and 20 minutes thing. It's okay, now we're going to the next uh, rotation. But nobody was scheduled right after us in that room. So we were like, well, you know, let's sit here and talk. We got to catch up. I ain't seen you in a while, Bob. Yeah, this is we talking about. Nobody in the room who was there for that panel wanted to leave. So, because they listen to us talk. We talking, and you because we running the genealogy. This is what uh, 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 Anderson Thompson and Larry Crow and Conrad World and them used to do. They just, they, if you get them in a the room, they're going to start running the genealogy. So they're going to say, this person influenced this person. This person influenced this person. This book, this this event, and they matching, they matching stuff. So if you're sitting there, you're getting a working genealogy, mouth to ear. This is in no book, because it's also coming with stories, stories they experienced, stories people who told them experienced, and so that's what we're doing. We, this is two generations having a different kind of conversation. And Curtis Alexander know all these people, so we're talking. Long story short, after it was over, we were in there for maybe like ninety minutes after that. And so finally, the next people say, okay, well, we got somebody here now. So okay, we're going to get, we get, we get, who comes to the front of the room, shakes my hand, gives me his card and says, will you reach out to me? Why? We're looking for somebody at Howard University. That was Russell Lee Adams, the chair of African Studies at Howard. He said, I was sitting in here and I couldn't leave. And then I looked around and seen people coming in here. And as word spread that y'all was in here holding court, people were leaving other workshops coming in here to listen. It was me and Curtis Alexander. It was really Curtis Alexander. Because when I'm in this position like that with an elder, I'm an interlocutor. I'm asking him questions that I know he can answer. I can ask him, why is it, why was it so important that Anacalypsis as a book was something that we read now? Because clearly it's outdated. Why are we still reading Gerald Massey? And then you walk you through the history of the Harlem History Club, the Edward Blyden Society. Okay, Bob. Okay. So when you got into publishing, I mean, do you remember Afro Am? Tell, tell us, you know, tell us about some of these people. What about Preston Wilcox? Now I know these names and I know some of these stories, but he knew these people. That's how you put mouth to ear history together. And so the rest is history. I emailed Dr. Adams and at the, he invited me down to Howard. I did an interview and they made me an offer. Now that offer came about a month after, before I got an email from a dean, the dean of College of Arts and Sciences at Tuskegee. But for that sitting with... Uh, with Curtis Alexander, I probably have been Tuskegee all these years, but sitting in that panel, so you know, I owe Kwame a lot. I don't even know if Kwame knows that story, quite frankly, but you know now he's playing. So anyway, yeah, I love you, brother. That's uh, so you know, we, we, we're kind of just there's so much going on right now, and it's in the in the week since we've seen each other. Um, of course, you mentioned Burkina Faso. That caught your uh, eye, huh, Fry? What's going on in Burkina? Hmm. There are a lot of things going on in Africa, and I'm making a commitment um, as I round into my eighth year on SiriusXM to spend time weekly uh, spanning the globe, you know, uh, educating myself about what's happening in these different places as folk contemplate, as Stevie Wonder has, moving back to the continent. Um, you know, I want to know what's going on, and I want to inform the audience about what's happening in these different places. I know there's something going on in Rwanda right now, in Ethiopia right now. Right. So when I saw the coup in Burkina Faso, I was like, what is happening on this continent? What is going on? So 
you know, I dropped that link to you last night because yeah. I was like, do you, you know, is there a thread that we should be paying attention to um, as all of these things erupt throughout the continent? And then there's something going on with China. We yeah. know that. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of outside interference. Yes. As yeah. always. Well, as always, I mean, I think that's one of the, uh, there are a lot of uh, sites. Uh, I think of like Africa is a country. Uh, I mean, yeah, is Africa is a country? Yeah, because of course Africa is not a country, but the idea is that these folk are putting together, of course, everything is available all the time, everywhere, at least it appears to be. So, you know, cutting through the noise is difficult, but there are a few anchoring places. Um, there was a magazine and the name escapes me now. It used to be just in print. First time I went to South Africa in 2004, I went looking for it. But I drugged my students there. Stephanie Joy Tisdale, Melvin Parole. I took, I drugged them down to Clark Street in Cape Town looking for this place, this hole in the wall where they sell the magazine and the name escapes me. It's cross street from Clark's bookstore. And it'll, if I ask, my, I'm going to ask myself to remember and maybe it'll come to me before we close out in a few uh, for today. But at any rate, they have a good website. But if you go to Africa as a country and start there, it'll kind of. And of course, beautifully, think about our brother Cedric in Brazil. You know, what is being published now here in the formation that you're pulling together, this pan-African network of almost string. It almost reminds me of Claude Barnett and the Associated Negro Press. We've done this before, of course. And of course, the, the, the domestic U.S. African press uh, the Defender, The Courier, all the great papers, The Call and Post, as we talked about, as you talked about last week. Um, all of those papers did international work and they did it well. So when you read uh, Gerald Horn's book on Claude Barnett and the rise of the Associated Negro Press, or and we talked about the Associated Negro Press as well. Um, I don't see if I had, I know I usually keep one of those uh, Associated Press books. Oh, here is... Um, can I pull this out? This is uh, Lawrence Hogan's book, A Black National News Service, the Associated Negro Press, um, and Claude Barnett. What we understand, this was he started the AMP in 1919, but it wasn't just Black American news. They covered Africa, they covered Caribbean, they covered wherever Black people were. And they often traveled there, which is why when Kwame Nkrumah was uh, brought in as Prime Minister of Ghana, the, the black press was there, the black American press. But at any rate, well, and, and Kwame is named for Kwame Nkrumah because Kwame is born on Wednesday, not Saturday. Uh, he said his dad named him after Kwame Nkrumah. That's what I'm talking about. That's see, that's that's the beauty. That's movement and memory. How did or do Africans remember that experience? And it actually ties beautifully to what's going on in Burkina Faso and what's going on all over Africa. There's a lot of internal critique of Kwame Nkrumah, the first prime minister of Ghana and legitimate critique in terms of maybe being him being heavy-handed imprisoning some of his political opponents including his jegna uh who he ended up opposing jb danqua and unfortunately but that has to be balanced against the full humanity of a person who uh john clark met when he moved to new york in 33 and was introduced to the Harlem History Club, the old Edward Blind Society by John Jackson. One of the people living in New York around that time was a young undergraduate student who ended up doing undergraduate work at 
Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, HBCU, named Francis Nkrumah. And John Clark met and befriended Francis Kwame Nkrumah uh, in the 30s, which is why when Dr. Clark moved to Ghana in the late 50s and didn't have no money, he always tell that story about how uh, Nkrumah, was, Nkrumah was prime minister and one day he was driving in a, in a car in Kruma with his motorcade and John Clark standing on the road like everybody else waving at the man. And, apparently, and then the motorcade screeches to a halt and Kruma gets out and goes back and say, sees John Henry Clark and said, what are you doing in my country? <laughs> and John Clark said, he said, well, you know, I came because I want to help Africa and, and he ain't got no money. He said the check he was owed for a piece that he had written in one of the American papers bounced. He, he over here in the slums. He said the slums of Accra. Kwame Nkrumah said, boy, you sure must love Africa. <laughs> he said, so he gave him a job on the Ghana, Day, Ghana Evening News, which was Kwame Nkrumah's newspaper. So, I mean, all those convergences, right? So, yeah, Kwame is named for Kwame Nkrumah. Of course, of course, it makes perfect sense because that's, you know, as far as Pan-Africanist. So, um, as I said, Nkrumah was overthrown in a coup d'etat that was fomented and it exacerbated existing tensions in the country, fomented by the UK, hail to the damn queen and king, and the United States and others. They ain't like Kwame Nkrumah because Nkrumah was saying, all you Africans, anybody from the African diaspora, y'all can come to Ghana, bring your skills, bring your talents if you uh, see, and maybe we should watch this. We can watch this in Nubia and Refill. We'll get our sister, uh, Shrikiana Aina, Holly, Holly Grima's wife and filmmaker who did her documentary Footprints of Pan-Africanism. That would be a beautiful one because she interviewed many of that generation of Africans from the United States who went to live in Ghana, some of whom are still there, many of whom are ancestors, but they've continued to come to Ghana. They're still in Ghana. Some of y'all may be uh, tuning in now or being in, a, in the Mbangi right now from Ghana. So you know this story um, and you're living this story. Shrikiana made a documentary on it. In many ways, it's the documentary uh, companion piece to Sankofa particularly that last scene in Sankofa. If you've seen Sankofa, the film that the Grim has made. Um, but at any rate, you can have a coup that can, that's going to be fomented from outside because, you know, these companies that these states are markers for, they want the gold, they want the bauxite, they want the oil, they want all this, they want the cocoa. They, want, they don't want these African countries to develop themselves in ways where they maintain control of their resources and use those resources to help their main resource, which is the human resource. They don't want that. They just want you to be able to walk in to Hershey, Pennsylvania at the gift shop and get some Hershey cocoa. <laughs> you know, they don't give a damn about Cote d'Ivoire. They will say they do, but only if you make enough noise to make them embarrassed or wor them worried about their bottom line, their sales line. But Nkrumah and them are moving in a different direction. So you got to take these guys out. You got to take out Nkrumah. You got to take out Amakar Cabral and Guinea Bissau. You got to take out uh, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. You got to some way how later on get rid of Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. After the assassination of uh, uh, Thomas Sankara, Burkina Faso has gone through serial uprisings, many times led by young people because these countries are in constant interference with them. And of course, we're keeping our eye on Haiti because the people are in the streets in Haiti and the Western press is, is making it, it was gang warfare, go to hell. You know what gang warfare is? When you drop your military in. Gang warfare is when you send several billion dollars to the Ukraine to fight Russia and most of the world is sitting it out. If you go follow what happened at the United Nations last week, when you, when you actually watch the speeches at the UN, you find out that most of the world not picking a side 
And that means they ain't picking NATO on the United States side. But you wouldn't know that watching the U.S. press because the U.S. press is handmaiden to the U.S. corporate interests and the U.S. political interests. So, you know, a real gang is when you drop a ton of, uh, uh, of bombs on somebody. Not what's going on in Haiti. What's going on in Haiti is the people are uprising because they are tired of outside interference and they're tired of people who have been appointed rather than elected. And they're tired of people who are profiting off of them who look like them and the people are suffering. So they in the streets marching, they're protesting. Well, same thing happens in Burkina Faso time after time after time. And when the quote unquote elected leader of Burkina Faso was taken out by a military coup, well, part of the issue was we have border problems and insecurity as it relates to quote unquote Islamic threats, Al-Qaeda, these other groups, which are coming into the country and adding to disruption and it's problematic. Well, is it completely problematic? Maybe not. How they get there in the first place, who's backing them, who's not backing them? Is this a proxy war? But one thing's for sure, I can't walk the streets in Ouagadougou at night. I can't go to my village. I can't go in the country. I get kidnapped. I get, you know, 40% of the country is beyond the reach of the government to protect. So part of these coups is because the people are suffering instability and the people are suffering literally in the wake of violence that might be able to be prevented. And you have the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. you got the biggest military in the region, Nigeria, and you've got them with their own politics. You know, there's an election coming up in Nigeria shortly. And they've got their own internal problems and their own internal hopes and aspirations. But of course, they're in a world system where these external actors, the same people who put the diamond ads in the New York Times and everywhere else, are looking like, you know, we have interests that don't converge with your interests. Our interest is profit. So if Peace brings profit. We don't care who brings the peace. They can have a gun or a suit. They can have a gun and a suit. We don't care. It could be a coup as long as it's peaceful. Ask the people in Egypt right now. Mm. The reason we can plan to go back to Egypt is because you had a thug in there for years, Hosni Mubarak. And then the people have the uprising, the so-called Arab Spring, which is hilarious because they don't have springtime in that part of the world. But, you know, it's cool. Then you have these, this, and then, they, and then so the U.S. and them is like, okay, Hosni. You can stay alive. You can go live in your resort up there in Alexandria or, or in the Red Sea, wherever you want to go, but you got to get the hell out of office. And then they have an elected government. The problem is you elect a cat who is put in power by the Muslim Brotherhood and the United States and they're like, uh-oh. So they have a coup. <laughs> and you bring in a military guy, Al-Sisi. Sisi comes in with a coup because you don't like the elected guy because, you know, Muslim extremism, whatever you want to say it. But when Sisi comes back in, you can now have the plane start landing back in Cairo and they can now take the flight to Eswan. Y'all can come back and see the pyramids because we got a guy in power who will shoot everybody and the United States don't care because we just need somebody to keep it quiet because we're really trying to extract these resources from Northeast Africa. So when you see instability, always ask, what is the material interest of the external actors? And 10 times out of 10, <laughs> that's going to tell you who's picking sides in these proxy wars. It's about resources. And so that's what's going on now in Burkina Faso. The instability has led to another member of the military overthrowing the guy who was military, who overthrew the elected uh, person. And now they're saying that, because what, what the current guy is in there now saying is, you're moving too slow. The thing is, is still unstable. And we, you know, the people are suffering. And you saying it's going to take two years to turn this back over to civilians and we're going to have elected government. Now you're moving too slow. Now the question is, does that mean that this new person is going to stay in there 
for a long time. But here's the constant, finally, in all these countries. Burkina Faso, if you go back over the last five years or so, the young people in particular, they're not having it. So while here in the United States, people got in the streets in the summer of 2020, they were in the streets in Burkina Faso for years before that. And unlike here, where it's like, Black Lives Matter, throw your fist up, put the cardboard sign up, and then get back on the subway and go home. These, these young people burnt the parliament. You see, y'all crooks. They'll burn you. That's why people say Africa is uncivilized. You know, now, because if you steal an election in Africa, they'll get the machete. If you steal one here, we'll just say, well, damn, uh, did the Rams play Sunday? The point is, <laughs> they care. We are caught up. We're caught up in the television stuff, you understand? And and so, you know, it, 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 it's kind of sad. But, so Burkina, um, Haiti, of course, uh, y'all saw the speech Putin gave blaming the West for a lot of stuff. And then you saw, I mean, it's, it, we, we don't even, you know, we don't even get into that. Uh, the elections in Brazil, actually the elections are Sunday. Looks like Lula da Silva will win if they count votes. The people get to vote and they count them. And when, when Lula wins, uh, and Lula is not without his problems. One of the problems, I'm reminded of this by one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Jemima Pierre out on the West Coast, who is herself Haitian, who along with a lot of other folks are being reminded that Lula da Silva, who is considered a champion of the working class in Brazil, a champion of Afro-Brazilians in many ways. And it's true. It's also true that Brazil contributed uh, a great number of troops to the UN occupation of Haiti at the behest of the United States. And unless he's going to change his foreign policy as it relates to Haiti, if Lula gets in, they may send more troops to Haiti and uh, and mess with Haiti, which is problematic. And that's why, you know, you never put your hopes and faith in any politician. I don't care if it's Lula da Silva or Barack Obama. No individual. These are these are forces that we have to control by organizing, which is where I want to end for today in a moment, where I was last night. So it's a lot going on. It's a lot going on in the world. And, you know, in the time since we've seen each other, um, that's, that's it. It's an interesting convergence. It's an interesting convergence. I was in virtually, like I said, the, the Comedic Institute for Health Human Development in Columbia, South Carolina. We had a conversation. There's a lot of Nubians there as well. That's the beautiful thing about virtual. People can go everywhere. Uh, and Thursday night. And the topic we were discussing is who is an American? Who is an American? And we've had that conversation many times. And, you know, in fact, uh, uh, a friend uh, uh, of mine, acquaintance, uh, Deneen Brown, published in the Saturday Washington, uh, Sunday Washington Post, last Sunday's Washington Post magazine, a long article entitled The Case for Leaving America uh, to Escape Racism. And she's talking about Africa primarily. So she quotes me, she quotes my colleague Alice Thomas over at Howard Law School, and we kind of occupy two ends of the continuum. My end of the continuum is like, hey, why not? There are a lot of people who are thinking about it, and I think about it every day. On the other end is Alice, who says, Professor Thomas, who says, yeah, I'm not going anywhere because my skills are needed here now more than ever to fight. Here's the problem. Both things can be true. In fact, both are true. I'm sitting in the U.S. right now. And now if you tell me right now that I had the resources and material, then, then next Saturday we will be uh, uh, opening from lovely Accra or Kumasi, you know, not Cape Town so much. If I want to go to San Francisco, I'll go to San Francisco in the United States. I don't need to fly halfway around the world to go to San Francisco. Maybe Joe Bird, um, but, you know, maybe Dakar, depends. Or maybe 
somewhere nice and country like where my mama came from and we just make sure we got the electronic hookup got the internet hookup and we go from there because more and more people are doing that so Denise wrote a long article in the washington post about that and it, it's becoming more public facing by public facing i mean social structure facing now people don't have these connections so we talked a little bit about that on thursday night um who is american and then last night because you know of course prof I don't know. Have you, did you ever find yourself have the occasion to either be a panelist or came down to cover or just came to see what was going on at the Congressional Black Caucus weekend at any point? Never found myself to do that ever. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. <laughs> uh, the CBC weekend, which of course is most of a week of panels and conversations culminating in the soirees and in every night, you know, the liquor flows freely, but it's fascinating because these representatives convene panels and a lot of the people who come to participate are people who are doing some incredible work. Like for example, this week, and I, I couldn't, I was in class. I couldn't get down this week. I've gone down a couple of times. I've been on a couple of panels. One time I went down at the behest of my, uh, of, uh, as they say in Philly, my young bull, who, of course, I say that affectionately because he is known to the social structure as Councilman Isaiah Thomas, who was one of our Freedom School students back in 1999, one of the original. He was 16 years old, he, Frankfurt High School, my man Isaiah, who is now on the Philadelphia City Council. And he's part of that group. In fact, Malcolm Kenyatta was there. And he, had a, he had a convening of Pennsylvania young lawmakers, the women and men who are in that next generation. And our relationship goes back, as I said, 20 some years. So he, you know, he texted me and said, you know, uh, Dr. Card, would you mind coming down and giving us some historical perspective on, you know, what you think about how we're trying to move? I said, come on, man, you know, I do anything for you, Isaiah. That's my man. He fights every day for black people, brown people, poor people, working class. He's doing everything he can. And there are a few people on that Philadelphia City Council who make it their business to let everybody know that's what they're doing. Um, so he, I'm sure Isaiah was here. You know, I'm sure Malcolm Kenyatta was here. I mean, they, they come. And so there's that strata. And Bobby Rush had a panel on practical policy um, lessons to learn from the Black Panther Party. Because, you know, Bobby, of course, we know Bobby Rush was a Panther. Now he's in Congress now. He's about to cycle out, retire. But he brought together, you know, ex-Panthers, people who are doing work now. Some of them, uh, sometimes the same people young people to talk about what lessons do we learn from free breakfast program, from sickle cell screening. And so the face of it is the Congressional Black Caucus and celebrities and other, but underneath that, the real value of those spaces often is the discussions that are being had and the people you run into incidentally. Because I met all those young legislators, city council people, Pittsburgh, Philly, like I said, the state house people like Kenyatta and them, you know, I wouldn't have met them had I not gone down there because Isaiah said, we need you. So I'll come down. I'll be there. So that, that's the value. Now, you got to get past all the other stuff because it will make you vomit. No question. <laughs> because you see, you see the madness. All of it's there. I mean, you know, we're quite comfortable, which is where I want to end for today. Because on the occasion of this Congressional Black Caucus formation, I was asked by the co-director of this documentary, which I mean, we should talk to see if we get a screen here. Why is we Americans? This is the poster. <laughs> I love it. It's really something. And of course, these your people, Prof. It's the, the whole documentary is on the history of the Baraka family, 
which is the history of Newark. Oh, Newark, yes. Newark, but straight Newark. Of course, Mama Mina Baraka, a, a force who still walks the earth, her husband, companion, comrade, the great Amiri Baraka, who made transition in 2014, and their son, the mayor of Newark. Oh, well, the whole family. But Ras is featured in the movie, of course. Uh, Lauren Hill is an executive producer. And last night, uh, the co-directors, who were Udi Oloni and Ayana Morris, convened this along with the help of, um, what's the name of that? Uh, Audible. In fact, there is a free book, free audio book that you can download from Audible now called The Book of Baraka. It is, it is Ras, Mayor Baraka, talking with Jelani Cobb, who's now the Dean of uh, Journalism at Columbia, but you know, they both were, they were Howard together. And they, man, Ras had me cracking up, talking about how he ended up getting to Howard. Cause you know, his daddy went to Howard, he never graduated. And, uh, but anyways, there's, there's so many stories, but that book is free. And I encourage you to, to listen to it. I say book, but it's really a conversation. It's really Ras narrating his life through the history of his parents, through the history of his community. And as you know, uh, Prof, and I never get tired of the energy of them Brick City Negroes. Newark don't play that. That's why we could go to St. Rocco's when they attacked Leonard Jeffries in Manhattan. They was like, no problem. Harlem, y'all little, come, come to Newark. Now, if them people want to attack you, we we invite them. <laughs> why don't you come? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And let, let's dance. But at any rate, this film does an excellent job of narrating really the history of Newark. And the history of black political power. So as you can imagine, you know all the highlights are there. The insurrections of 67, 68. So Larry Ham is in there. A lot of people, though. A lot of rank and file people. They got Roxanne Shantae in there. I mean, it's like, what? And you see her in this. She she invites these young girls in. And they and they're there. That they do a they do a, a a trio, not a duet, but a trio on you know you best go about your way and have a nice day. <laughs> but the girl, the young girls, I'm looking at these teenagers. They're like probably 13, 14 years old. They know all the words, and she's letting them perform and back and forth. And then she embraces them and says, "The next generation." You see the campaigns, and, and of course, after the film, we had a conversation. And what they, what Ayana wanted me to do, Ayana Morris, who's a native of of Newark, the co-director, what she wanted me to do was moderate the conversation between. She Udi, she Udi, and uh, Mayor Baraka Ras. So it was the three of them, and I kind of moderated uh, a conversation after that on why is we Americans, and of course that's the name of a very famous Mayor Baraka poem, "Why is we Americans," which is oh my God, it is brilliant. He did an excerpt from it that is very famous. Y'all can find it on YouTube. It was uh, performed that excerpt at um, Deaf Jam, Deaf Poetry Jam. Most Deaf brings him on the elder Baraka, and he opens with John Coltrane. Because you know, a lot of his poetry, he would put musical accompaniments by humming something. So when he comes in, he's like, Berita, Berita. and he says, you know, what I want is me, for real. So why is we Americans? He answers that in the first line. What I want is me, for real. Meaning what? I want me, I want us, for real. I don't want you. So you talk about why is we American? And then he goes through the litany of abuses of what this country has done. And then he talks about what it would look like if we got what we want. And in the Audible book, one of the first things Raz says is, you know, I grew up in a household where you can reduce our politics to three simple questions. And this is one thing I love about Ross Baraka, among many other things. He's an artist, really, a poet, like his parents, both of his parents. I mean, you ever heard of Mina do her poetry, Mama Mina? You can state something very simply and communicate a universe of ideology. 
So Raz said, you know, he said, you know, and this is the opening question I asked him after we got, you know, through the film. We talking. I said, I'm gonna keep this short because I want to get people in the audience to ask questions, you know, because this is a communal conversation. So I'm just gonna start with something that you always say, uh, Mr. Mayor. Um, he said there are three questions, three questions that animate my politics. What do we want? What do we need? And how can we get it? That's, that's beautiful. That's just the, the simplest. What do we want? What do we need? And how do we get it? Now, of course, that opens up the can of worms because who is we? But it, it exposes the interests. And so that opened up a conversation on why is we Americans. And we'll talk about that another time. Maybe I'll talk some more about it on Office Hours Monday night. So, you know, the numbers continue to grow. And it's beautiful to have thousands plus in that space on Monday, just really having a conversation and people coming in, adding their commentary, adding their experiences. So I think maybe we'll devote some time Monday to working through that. And I'm and actually I'm gonna ask Ayana, with your, I don't know, Prof, maybe I'll just say this live now. It might be interesting to see if she would, you know, screen it and come because, you know, the intergenerational conversation is just brilliant. And, you know, I only asked them a couple of questions a piece before we went right to the audience, because like I said, I wanted to get out of the way. And there was a lot of newer kids in the in the room and a lot of newbies. That's why I saw Ndoku. That's why I saw um, Aya. That's why I saw Adesoje. Adesoje was across the pond. He came over here. Man, what's going on, bro? Yeah, I was like, look at Adesoje. I mean, it was crazy because they all came. So, you know, as I was saying, I, I said I said to the mayor last night that, you know, Everything sounds, feels, looks eminently reasonable. Everything you're talking about, clean drinking water. And I brought that up too, because of course he's good friends with uh, Chokwe, Lumumba, Antar, Lumumba, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. And he, he told them the story last night of how he was coming to the State of the Black World meeting that was held in DC back in, that must've been 20, when was he, when was he elected? 14? I think it was 14. I don't remember. Yeah, well, maybe yeah, because but but it was the he was elected the same year that Chokwe Lumumba was ma elected mayor of Jackson. Chokwe Lumumba, the father, you know, who was you know one of my heroes, radical lawyer man, it was my man. But at any rate, Chokwe made transition not too long after that. He died in office, and um, but Raz said I got off the train at Newark at Union Station in D.C. and I got in the cab. I was getting ready to get in the cab. And who am I standing next to? And we rolled up to Howard together because they had the State of the Black World Conference. I remember that in Blackburn Center in Howard. But Chokwe Lumumba, not Antar, not Chokwe Antar, the mayor, current mayor, his father. And he said shortly after that, you know, we we talked about, you know, all the politics. And and he said, you know, I, was, I won the election a little bit later. He said, I don't believe in accidents. I said, I don't either, brother. There are no such things. There are no accidents. And so I was very moved by this conversation on why are we Americans and in a week when we see a renewed focus on all of this anti-CRT stuff and book banning the question of why, we, why are we Americans is very very salient it's something that we should never never keep far from our minds and, and by that, I mean, you know, if you look at uh, Baba Amiri, if you look at Amiri Baraka's piece, you'll see that what he does is lay out what a society would look like 
And then at the end of his poem, he says, you know, only then, only after all that, can we talk about being Americans? Can we talk about being Americans? Because it don't mean nothing. Now, Rass would tell you, he said, I'm an American, you know, my father and mother are Americans. And he said, but that don't mean that we are not also human beings in the world, that we are not also Africans. And that's very clear. You know, his mom says in the, uh, in the, uh, in the film, you see, I'm a Marxist. And I, I was laughing. I told him last night, I said, I think V.I. Lennon should probably get an interview credit because I've seen his picture in the back at y'all house like a half dozen times in this movie. I mean, and if you, you know, anyway, I won't get too deep into that. We can talk about that. No, more. we have to. We have to get it. Um, Just, you know, make the introduction. The yeah. Team do I, it. And, I yeah. That's the, I mean, I'm so impressed that we have a space where we can have conversations around movies conversations around documentaries with the documentarians themselves and then watch it together with the chat open people are chatting and then afterwards deconstruct the people like with uh omi's movie people came in to ask her questions about it afterwards and it was it was beautiful in in this format we can do it freely so yeah the answer is i'm never gonna say no no, we, I mean, that's the beautiful thing. Okay, well, good. Then yeah, I'll do that today. I'll make the introduction and then, you know, you all can move from there. Because again, I mean, you know, this is, you know, you, obviously you get funding from wherever you get it. It's made the, the, the film festival circus, but the, the film is really governance. And it comes down to that simple proposition that brings us back to where we started. There are the social structure engagements that we must do. Today, for example, October the 1st, uh, unless I miss my memory, is Fannie Lou Hamer's birthday. And of course, we spent a lot of time with Ms. Hamer. We we talked about the recent materials by her. We actually read and heard her words, including the time that she appeared in New York on the same stage as Malcolm X, uh, when they were preceded that night by the SNCC singer singing Oginga Odinga about when Oginga Odinga came from Kenya in the government of Yomo Kenyatta and came to Atlanta. And the white liberals in Atlanta tried to convince him that, you know, Atlanta doesn't have any race prejudice. And then black students in SNCC was like, yeah, okay. We went down to the Peachtree Manor to see Oginga Odinga. Police said, what's the matter to see Oginga Odinga? Police said, you know, look at this. What's going on? I said, yeah, this is our brother. We're going to make sure that he know what y'all doing over here. Well, that's in the same spirit. So Mrs. Hamer, who visited West Africa, as we talked about, who said, this is where my ancestors came from, who immediately identified with and locked in to those African people over there, who, as we talked about, she then commented to the white Peace Corps workers who she saw over there, why y'all over here? Y'all need to be back at home where you live, where you came from, working to fight the stuff here. You don't, We don't need you over here. You need to go over there, where you came from, fight them people, fight for them people. You come over here and help Africans. I mean, it's almost like, I don't know, maybe like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Mind. But anyway, the point is that, you know, Fannie Hamer has a public-facing side, a social structure-facing side, and then a governance formation she comes out of. And that's very important. Well, the same thing with a brother whose birthday he will spend locked up unjustly uh, which is the 4th of October, and that's Hubert Rap Brown. H. Rap Brown, and, and, and maybe we'll end with this for today, because there's so much that I'm working through, and I think maybe next week I want to spend some time with this book that just came out on textbooks. I talked about this a little bit uh, earlier in the week with my sister and, and uh, comrade uh, Shannon Terrell with the Center for Black Educated Development, Teaching White Supremacy. 
America's democratic ordeal and the forging of our national identity, Donald Yakovon. Um, I'm not encouraging anybody to go spend any money on this book. You know, I, I go broke, broke enough, but I'm just saying, because now, I mean, what we clearly see in, in uh, social structure and white publishing is there has been a, just an, uh, an explosion of self-congratulatory we're racist books. So, you know, they, they've discovered Native America again. So all these books are coming out now. A rewriting of the history of America with Native Americans at the center. You know, okay, that's cool. Uh, now that this cat right here goes through the curriculum wars and goes through the establishment of white supremacy in the curriculum. And uh, okay, so of course I buy these books and I read these books primarily for the footnotes. These are the kind of books I'll read the footnotes first. I'll start with the bibliography. I'll take my pencil, check off all the books I have. And then the ones I don't have, I decide whether I need to get those books in that. And then I'll start with the footnotes and go through each page of footnotes in detail to see to see what sources I didn't know. Then I go back and read the narrative because the least important thing in a book like this, as far as I'm concerned, is your interpretation. Come on. I don't give a damn how you listen. This is what I'm saying. Oh, the most brilliant. No, 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 no. Let me see the footnotes. Let me see the bibliography. Now, now this book here, Jones. Pick up a book like this. I know what his political, what his politics are based on reading the, the conclusion, and the introduction. Once I'm satisfied that his politics align with the governance formation, I will then read the bibliography, read the footnotes, then go back. But this time I'm gonna read in detail because academics are not combatants. I know academics like to pretend to be combatants. So they'll go to the panel, they'll go stay in the hotel, they'll get the honorarium, and then they'll sit and talk to each other about how revolutionary they are. Huh? It's great. I've done it myself. But don't mistake that for what Rass was talking about last night, which is where I want to end. We'll talk more about this on Monday night in detail, I think. Ideology as Raz was saying last, now mind you now, I want to just say this though, just let me, not even a long time, take 30 seconds, I promise you, let me discipline, discipline myself today. Raz's parents, his siblings' parents are two of the most remarkable human beings that our communities have produced in the last century. Amina Baraka, her humanity, her warmth, her generosity, this is a sister who started a, a, a black school in her house, and there's a clip in the film where they go through the ABCs, but each one of the letters represents something black, represents something powerful. So like you get to J and she says, and what we don't have in this society is, and then all these children, it's like 20 children, justice. Yes. And then they go to the next, <laughs> and black boys are K, king. And then they get to Q, little black girl, you are queens. And everything. I mean, resources, I mean, all the stuff. And these are children, like some of them like three, four years old, right? Including all of their children. Amiri Baraka, people don't even scratch the surface of Amiri. Now, I was telling Raz last night, I asked about his daughter, uh, his oldest uh, child, uh, because uh, Amanda, who is in the film, who helped make the film, uh, she he said she's doing filmmaking now. She's somewhere in the country making film. I saw her because she was in my class back in 2010. In fact, uh, I remember uh, sitting next to Baba Amiri. He was on campus. He said, man, thanks for looking at my granddaughter. I said, man, you know, I can't show my face in the known world if I didn't mess over your, your grandchild. So, but this is the governance formation. So what Raz Baraka was saying last night was, in other words, these are people who, and I won't get into it now, but clearly very ideologically uh, committed 
very powerful. They tell the story in the film about how they emerged out of the 50s and 60s in the Black Power Movement. I would encourage you, if you can get your hands on it, maybe a paperback version is a little bit cheaper. My friend and brother, Michael Samanga, who has been at Georgia State for a while, called Amiri Baraka and the Congress of African Peoples. The film starts with Baraka in 1972 at Gary, Indiana, at the National Black Political Con Convention. Uh, very conference. We're on the 50th anniversary of, of Gary, 72 there. Um, but all of that ideology, all the splits, all the tensions, all the convergences, the operational unity, that whole story. And there are fewer and fewer people around who were there in those conversations, whether it be James Turner, who just made transition, or, or you know, Milan Karenga, who's still around. Elsie Scott, who's down at Howard, who attended the Gary Conference. We're going to do something around Gary in the next month or so. You know, the point I'm trying to make is all of that ideology is the foundation out of which the subsequent ways of activism emerged, not just in the United States, but in 74, they meet in Tanzania, the Sixth Pan-African Congress. Those things still percolate. But what Ross was saying last night is, oh, that's well and good. But that lady just had her lights turned off. This young brother or sister coming to school to eat because they ain't had nothing to eat at home. He said, my father and mother could walk the streets and people say, we love what you do. And we, you know, we, we support you. You know, how can we organize this kind of thing? When I walk the street, it's like, I need a job. <laughs> he said, that shrinks the universe of ideology down very quickly. And this is where I probably depart with some of my dear friends who are ideologically brilliant. But ain't nobody asking them for a job. They asking Ras Baraka for a job. That's <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So he said, you know, wow, my mother says she, I'm, I'm a Marxist, and I might be sitting here like, yeah, me too. Okay, yeah. So how are we gonna get this water back on? And we talked about water last night because it ain't just as we know, a prop as you know, it, it, it ain't just Jackson, it ain't just Flint. It's Newark too. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Our people are suffering, and so we can have our politics pristine. But how are we going to get services to it? What do we want? What do we need? And how can we get it? That shrinks it down. Rap Brown, who the police caught in Lowndes County, Alabama, because that's where he had gone as a young man when he joined SNCC and he went out, they went out there to organize in Lowndes County, Alabama, not too far from Tuskegee. Rap Brown, who in, I think I should have a copy of, yeah, these are his two books, and I've showed y'all these before, but I keep them around. Here's the, his uh, semi-autobiography, whose title you can read for yourself, <laughs> and uh, which actually, in Revolution by the Book, The Rap is Live, which he published uh, just before he was accused of this crime in Atlanta, west end of Atlanta, right around the corner from the AUC, uh, he didn't commit. He says, um, he says, it was from watching white people, what they had and what we had that I learned about this country, Brown wrote in his part autobiography, part political handbook, Die in Word Die. He says, I lived near Louisiana State University. I mean, he's from Baton Rouge. Um, shout out, by the way, to the basketball coach at Louisiana State. What's her name? Uh, um, Kim Oakley? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really. I mean, it's very important to support your former players at Major. Crusty, dry. But I, what I love is, and look now, we can set aside whether Brittany Griner is a is caping for politics or whatever. She locked up. We can set aside whether she should have had the stuff in her bag. K. Malky, MAGA. I love the fact that when she wouldn't had got no comment on this player that gave her an undefeated season at Baylor, and now she at LSU picking that black cotton. 
to make some more money. I love that them sisters and other people, like everybody was like, okay, black women, when you're considering Louisiana State University, look at that coach. See, y'all gonna mess around a minute and I pray it's a quick minute. You gonna mess around and break it. You gonna break it. Because what you're talking about black people is, we don't give a damn about America or nothing else. What do we want? What do we need? And how can we get it? Do I need to wrap this flag patch on my shoulder? No problem. Because I got something I want for my ma- my mother, my father, my community. How, what do we need? And how can we get it? This is what Raz is dealing with. So finally, Rap Brown says, I live near Louisiana State University and I could see this big fine school with modern buildings and it was for whites. Then there was Southern University, which was about to fall in. And that was for the N-words. And when I compared the two, the message that the white man was trying to get across was obvious. Die, nigga. Die. That's why he named his book. Die, nigga, die. Every message they send in, the funding you won't get in my alma mater, Tennessee State, the fact that you, you punk Tate Reeves, you punk governor of punk ass Mississippi, making sure that you and your predecessor, Bryant, make sure that y'all football playing buddy siphons off money that taken from the mouths of people who need the money to eat and make sure that his daughter's volleyball got a new volleyball thing to play in after the high school you tricked out y'all can go to hell why is we americans this is what amiri is asking until this 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 and this no and then he says then we can talk about being americans he said at what we want out of, out of out of our nostrils is the stench the stench of what you've done and he said you know only then can we talk about being Americans after we have satiated the desire to set your ass on fire. <laughs> he said, you know, but in order for us to have that kind of dampen, you have to do more than wave a flag and talk about the founding fathers, your founding fathers. And so, I mean, I think as we, you know, we go into this coming up week, we have to remember that so much has changed and so much hasn't changed and um i think uh and, and also uh, i should say one other thing also we should also be mindful of oh no i'll do it i'll do it that's okay please that's all right uh october 6th is fanny lou hamer's birthday the reason why i know it is because it's the day that i started on sirius xm in 2014 it's my anniversary on the airwaves and i sit on that day uh in honor of that woman uh, so I know that there's something ordained about my presence on that star that I, I sit on every day, three hours, Monday through Friday, three to six. Those of you who do not have SiriusXM, get the app, download it. It is, it is worth your dime, your coin to, to be a member of the Urban View family all throughout the day. Yes. From Joe Madison to Larry Daniel Favors to Heather B to Clay Kane to me. Yeah. You know, Saturday and Sunday included. Um it's civics lesson on there, right? Sunday civics is on Sunday. Uh, we got Pastor Sories on Sunday too. Sories. Yeah, we he kicks it off preaching. Pastor Buster Sories. Uh, we got Omi Bell. We got Dr. Robin on on Sundays. We have uh, Sir Michael, who's probably going to be moving to Saturdays. We're going to announce some more. We, we're oh, going to bring some more people in. Um, um, you know, because uh, you know, when we spend money, we should get fed. We should get more. We should get everything. So. And by and by the way, uh, the event last night started at five. 
So it was rush hour prof. When this man's black man stopped me in the middle of the street talking about, I'm listening to Gary right now. <laughs> so you know, bro, it's traffic. Oh, I'm about to get hit in the street. But I had to go over and get that man a pound. So yes, invest y'all money. No question. Serious. Yeah. You know, we had that conversation last week. Yeah. Uh, on this day, though, Morgan State and Kentucky State were founded. So State. yeah, October 1st is very special. So you know what? I was just, yeah, we remember we yeah. talked about Roy Wilkins. So Kentucky State in frankfort kentucky and of course the, what they call the national treasure morgan state it was some morgan in fact james morgan my my, my man George, james morgan's a grad student at morgan state he did his undergrad at howard he's from newark so i mean he was a, he, he came last night because he said the baraka family means a lot to me because when i was a teenager remember rass was a teacher he said i was a substitute teacher i was a teacher i was assistant principal i was a principal there's, an, there's a there's a powerful moment i'm gonna make this very quick there's a powerful moment when he says in the in the documentary he's in the school gym at his high school where he's the principal and there's been another shooting and remember his sister was killed in gun violence i remember that night because sonia sanchez came to talk to our freedom school students and she was a little late i'm outside waiting for her in west philly and i said what happened mama sonia so i just got off the phone with the baracas she had been killed the straight domestic violence a stalker it was terrible and there's a and and, and ras reads a poem in the film where he said they killed my baby sister they kill my it just tear your heart out you know what i'm saying but uh, Johnson C. Smith, by the way, she's a graduate of Johnson C. Smith. But anyway, uh, as I was saying, he's in the gym. Somebody been shot. And you see all the students in the bleachers. And he's on the floor with the microphone. He says, you should never get used to this, y'all. He said, they will tell you that black death, this is just what we do. He says, not what we do. This is not natural. I don't want you all to tune out. I want you all, we'll grieve together. With, but please, we must know that this is not the life. This is not the life that is meant for you. This is not our life. It is the reality now, but we must change. And he ended with that. He says, I believe, I know from my whole life that we can win. But we will only win if we're disciplined, if we're organized. I mean, it was just very powerful. Okay, all the books, all the ideology, but at the end of the day, we can win. We win it right now. So yeah. I'm going to with that. I was going to uh, end with uh, Stevie, but yes! y'all, y'all could go watch pa- Pastime Paradise. I think this is more poignant. Oh! Given what you set up and lined up for us. So I just want to uh, say thank you as always. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, I never know where we're going to go, but I get in happily into this vehicle every single week. Because no, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's going to be some shade. I'm going to put my seatbelt on and my sunglasses. <laughs> But you know what? I love it. You you did that. You brought in our brother Kwame yeah. Alexander. The, yeah, the ancestors in charge. Look at always. look at Black Dante. Always, always look at him. Look at him. Look at Black Dante, the mighty most deaf. Uh, Nubian, see y'all on them Nubian streets tomorrow uh, with Dr. Senyata and Monday, um, uh, of course, office hours with Dr. Carr and then Metanetra on Tuesday and on and on and oh, on no. and on. The beat. Uh, oh, come know. on now. Come on. I want to do it. I want oh, to do but, it. You, but you know what? So funny. Uh, Mama Amina Baraka, her enslaved name, Sylvia Robinson. So when you quote when you quote Sugar Hill Gang, of course, another Sylvia Robinson who started the ancestors are just they got jokes. <laughs> anyway, love you, love you, Mary Mary Barack. This is an excerpt from a poem called Why Is We Americans?
but reality is an excerpt on television. Why is we Americans? Why is we Americans? Boodida, 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 what I want is me, for real. I want me and myself and what that is is what I be and what I see and feel and who is me and the what it is and who it is and when it me is what it be. I'm going to be here if I want, like I said, self-determination. But I ain't come from a foolish tribe. We wants the mule, the land. You can make it 300 years of blue chip stock in the entire operation. We want to be paid in a central bank. The average worker, farmer wage for all those years we gave it free. Plus, we want damages for all the killings and the fraud, the lynchings, the missing justice, the lies and frame-ups, the unwarranted jailings, the tar and feathering, the character and race assassinations, historical slander, ugly caricatures for every Sambo Step and fetch it, flick, we want to be paid for every hurtful thing you did or said, for all the land you took, for all the rapes, all the rosewoods and black wall streets you destroyed, all the miseducation, jobs lost, segregated shacks we lived in, the disease that ate and killed us, for all the mad police that drilled us, for all the music and dances you stole, the styles, the language, the hip clothes you cop, the careers you stop, all these are suits, specific litigation as represent we, be like we for reparations, the damages paid to the Afro-American nation. Budida, Budida, Budida. We want education for all of us and anyone else in the black pelt hurt by slavery for all the native peoples. Even the poor white people you show all the time is funny. All them Abners and Daisy Mays and Beverly Hillbillies who never got to know Beverly Hills, who never got to Harvard on their grandfather's wheels. We want reparations for them right on for the Mexicans whose land you stole for all of North Mexico. You call it Texas, Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado. All that, all that, all that, all that. Bidida, doo-doo. Ba, 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 all that you got to give up. Autonomy and reparation to the Chicanos and the Native Americans who sold you ripped out with their land, give self-determination, regional autonomy. That's what my we is asking, and they're going to do the same when they demand it like us again. And they only exploited the name, yeah, the education, that's right. 200 years. We want a central stash, a central bank with democratically elected trustees and a board elected by us all to map out from the referendum we set up what we want to spend it on to build that Malcolm sense self-determination as self-reliance and self-respect and self-defense, the will of what the good Dr. Du Bois beat on, true self-consciousness, simply the psychology of freedom, Budida, Budida, Budida. Then we can talk about being American. Then, then we can, then, then we can listen. Then we can listen without the undercurrent of desire to first set your ass on fire. We will only talk of voluntary unity of autonomy as vective arms of self-determination if there is democracy in you. That is where it will be shown. This is the only way we as Americans 
This is the only truth that can be told. Otherwise, there is no future between us but war. And we as rather lovers and singers and dancers and poets and drummers and actors and runners and elegant heartbeats of the sun's flame. But we is also at the end of our silence and sit down. We is at the end of being under your ignorant smell, your intentional hell. Either give us our lives or plan to forfeit your own.